This is Eric. Eric, how are you, sir? I'm well. Excellent. And in the USA, state of New York? I guess that's me. This is Mike. Mike, how's it going, my friend? Not bad. That's good. I know that you're looking forward to April break, right? Because you're a teacher. Yeah, we got spring break starting, well, tomorrow afternoon, I suppose. Uh, we got a week off. Going to spend a couple days down in Atlantic City, maybe deal with a nor'easter. My wife will gamble. I'll probably just watch movies. Oh, so it's this early. In New Hampshire and Massachusetts, it's middle of April. Other states do that better than New York. I actually grew up in New York, and spring break always comes too early for it to be warm. It's kind of stupid. Unless you head to Florida, I guess. Right. But when you're young, you don't have a job and you're poor, it's hard to get to those places. Now, Eric, what is that other podcast that you do with your buddy Dan? I do a general interest podcast called the Ascancity Podcast. That's A-S-K-A-N-C-I-T-Y. We talk about a little bit of everything, sports, health, fitness, news, music, tech. We cover all of it. You can find us on the iTunes store and at Ascancity.com. Very good. And you're beginning your second 100 episodes. That's right. We just passed 100. What about you, Mike? I know you've been doing a blog did you get that walking dead thing up you were talking about just finishing the editing now actually there's two separate things i'm putting up one has to do with the hitchhiker and one has to do with with andrea because i've been falling behind events keep changing with each episode so and hopefully have it up tomorrow and what is the web address uh, that's unnatural-selections.com people by the time you hear this podcast those things should probably be up but if not keep on going back and checking mike what have you seen recently in the past week or so read anything new in genre or anything like that no pretty much everything i have done has been pertaining to the episode we are going to be talking about tonight. I have seen a mountain fell by a flower, I've seen a hand lose its head, and I've seen a sea set on fire, but any more than that I don't want to talk about yet. Fair enough. Now, Eric, what about yourself? I've seen a couple of things. I went to the theater last week and saw The Call with Holly Berry. It was better than I thought it was going to be. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's by the same director as uh, Session 9 and The Machinist, and I think Vanishing on 
7th Street or something like that? Right. A lot of people say they've been bombarded with advertising from it, so they don't want to see it, and I'm not one of those people because I shield myself from that. So I was a little surprised at the beginning of the movie when a WWE logo popped up on the screen. I was like, oh, no. But I actually ended up liking it. What's that mean? They're into movies now? They're doing movies? Oh, apparently so. They keep on popping them out more and more frequently. Yeah, and this one has a big star and an up-and-coming director. So, yeah, that's interesting. I also watched on iTunes pre-release a movie called Come Out and Play, which I believe is a remake of a, a film called Who Could Kill a Child? Anyone who knows them. <laughs> Pretty much. And that one I wasn't so keen on. It was a cool concept, but I thought it was not well executed. So I can't really recommend Come Out and Play. I also caught up on The Walking Dead. I'm still not jumping up and down about that show, but it picked up a little bit in the past few episodes. Where Uh, are you? I am current. You are current. Okay. Yes. Oh, and mostly what I've been doing is attempting to ingest what we're going to be talking about tonight because it's a lot of complicated material. Yep, that's true. Yeah, myself, I actually watched a couple films that we're going to discuss in a future episode and I just have to watch one more which was one you suggested Eric uh-huh. and let that go and I'll talk about what those are until that episode comes but I did rewatch Turn of the Living Dead and yep movie's still great so I was just popping in and, and watching and since I had just watched that one I said well you know what I'll watch another good zombie film that I liked a few years ago an English one called The Zombie Diaries and that was actually stood up it's still as good as I saw it like five years ago anybody who hasn't seen that one it's pretty good it's different so I can't say that most people who like zombies will go in and go think it's, you know, it's a completely different film than, say, Return of the Living Dead or even Night of the Living Dead. But it's a found footage and, well, it's, uh, it works. So, uh, either of you guys ever seen that film? No. No, I've heard of it, but I, like, when I finally got around to wanting to buy it, it had disappeared off the Walmart shelves and they never seemed to find it on Netflix and I just haven't gotten around to doing it. I've have heard good things about it and I've heard the, well, it's not that good things about it, uh, which usually means it's good and people are just sour pusses. So, I don't know. I'll, like I said, I'm curious to find it and I've been keeping my eyes open. I just haven't pulled the trigger on either a copy off of Amazon or managed to catch it on cable or anything. Yeah, I know there's a second one that came out a couple of years after that one called Zombie Diaries 2 and I have not seen that one, but if any of the listeners have seen it, email us in here at darkdiscussions at AOL.com or go to the Facebook group and let us know. Now, uh, I do have one email that I, I wanted to read from someone that Eric knows, uh, Mr. Kevin Letts. Ah, yes. And it is basically about our last Exorcism film episode, which was episode 93. Oh, is he the one who likes it's stuff that you talk about, though, Mike, and you brought up very, very well in the episode. And let me read the email. Kevin Letts writes, I listened to your podcast on The Last Exorcism. Mike, you are one sick person. Anyway, <laughs> I... <laughs> what did I say in that episode? I don't know. I'm, I'm still confused on that. We'll have to ask him on Facebook. Oh, I can't but... say he's wrong. <laughs> I understand my, you know, hesitation on exactly what sexual arousal does to the Wicked Witch of the West, but that's... Oh, I, I think I know what That's it the is. wrong that's, episode. I, it must be about <laughs> the, the cats and the bar penises. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah. Design it! <laughs> Well, we'll ask Kevin anyway on Facebook, but the rest of the email goes on. He goes, anyway, I skipped the sequel, but we'll probably rent it on DVD. I didn't find the first one offensive. And he's talking about the religious points that you mentioned, Mike, how some folks considered anti-Christian. Yes, many are scam artists who preach and don't believe are those who preach because it runs in their family. One of which was well-known 1980s comedian Sam Kinison. Was this anti-Christian? Maybe, maybe not. I don't think so personally. People question their faith several times when bad things happen or 
when they think they haven't done anything wrong and bad things will still happen to them. I can understand Cotton's perspective in trying to put an end to what he thinks are fake exorcisms. The Bible does have exorcisms. The funny thing is, what we see are exorcisms today are not what happened in the Bible. There was one exorcism when a demon-possessed girl was bugging the Apostle Paul, and he was turned around in a frustrated tone in the name of Jesus, come out of her, and the demon left. No reading, prayers, ceremonies, rituals, etc. I believe in demons and exorcisms, because Kevin Letts, for those folks who don't know him, he's a very religious person. But like Cotton, I think a lot of what our thought as a possession is really something more mental or physical. Growing up, I met two people that may have been truly possessed. One was a friend in an earlier class from mine, I think Eric knew her, and a guy in our class, older brother, not Eric's, who claimed to be possessed by seven demons but didn't seem to have a problem with it. <laughs> Great. I typed up a sermon again. Glad to hear the podcast, Kevin. Pretty much points out exactly what you were talking about, Mike, in the episode. I'm curious to know who he was talking about because I can't place those people in my head. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you have to Facebook him and ask him. Yeah. Some of the feedback we got this week. Well, I, th- I thank Kevin. He certainly is a person of strong opinion. I do have him on my friends list, I guess, on Facebook, but he is nice enough to keep his political issues off the Dark Discussions board. Not that I necessarily disagree with everything he says, but it's, you know, there are the times you want to get away from that, and we do thank his support. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. no, we don't thank his support. We thank him for his support. We don't actually thank the support itself. <laughs> and he's actually one of the more active members on the Dark Discussions podcast Facebook group as well. Now, Mike, any news have you heard in the horror or any opinions on any of the shows? I assume you saw Bates Motel? No, we actually have it DVR. It's been a very, very busy week, and I really haven't had a chance to, to catch up for much except, of course, for you know what we're talking about this week, which I don't know why we're making a secret of it. Because we're talking about that, it now. Yeah. Anyway, so I've been watching that for the last week and uh, haven't really caught up on that. So I've got Bates Motel in my queue, and I'm, I'm very curious. I've actually heard good reviews from the official reviewers. Not necessarily enthusiastic, but good. I haven't heard any other news, really, in the genre at all. I do know uh, of, unfortunately, two passings, however, that I wanted to bring up. One was the English author. Folks may know him for a book that he wrote called The Rap. Among others, his name's uh, James Herbert. Passed away just a couple days ago at the age of 69. And then, oddly, literally this afternoon, and I just heard about it maybe 15 minutes ago from posts on Facebook, Rick Hodler passed away, another author. Friends with Stephen King, actually went to college with him, had a number of best-selling books in the 1980s, and I actually met him at Anthocom in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the convention there, and he offered to do an interview with me, but at the time I wasn't able to do it, and by the time I wanted to hook up with him, I had to get back home. So uh, I never got to interview him, though I did talk to him for a good, good 15 minutes offline. Really nice guy. Uh, rest in peace for Rick Hodler and uh, Mr. Herbert. And uh, much. So anything else you guys wanted to mention before we begin our topic? I did hear something, though, that I thought Eric would be interested in listening to. <laughs> and what's that? <laughs> Phenomena. 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 That's revenge for my Facebook post from this morning. Yes. Uh, sorry. I'm not familiar with this inside joke. What happened this morning? <laughs> On Facebook this morning, I shared a picture that had the picture of those Muppets, and it just says, Phenomena. Now you'll have that stuck in your head all day long. Which is a, it's a classic Muppet Show skit, and it sort of turned into a, a running gag. Kind of works into our thing tonight, right? Because I think both of you have claimed that. <sighs> 
Just fast forwarded through through the credits. See, I can't say it bothers me. Actually, I can't fast forward through those credits very often because I just find them fascinating to watch. They are cool credits to watch. They and sure for those are. of you that don't recognize the tune, you tonight, don't know what gonna... the hell we're going to be talking about tonight. <laughs> tonight we're talking about the HBO television series based on a series of books, Game of Thrones. Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know about fear? For the winter, when the sun hides for years. In that darkness, the white walkers came for the first time. Does it truly saw the white walkers? The madman sees what he sees. There have been disturbing reports. What kind of reports? God, I don't want to believe. We have been capturing wildlings. More every month. The fleeing south. There's a war coming then. Don't know when, I don't know who will be fighting. It's coming. You are the king's hand and the king is a fool. And doomed unless you save him. This is no longer a game. Soon you will cross the narrow sea and take back your father's throne. When they write the history of my reign, sweet sister, they will say it began today. I want him dead. You'll dishonor yourself forever. Honor? You think it's honor that's keeping the peace? It's fear. Fear and blood. Everyone who isn't us is an enemy. I don't want to frighten you, but we've come to a dangerous place. Wow. 
Thrones, you win or you die. Yep, that's right. A series of books written by George R. R. Martin, and he's very non-prolific, is what I'm told. <laughs> well, that depends. He doesn't release many books, but when he does, they are fucking thick. <laughs> right. The Stephen King thick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, like the, the most recent book, I think he had to split the two because it was so big. And even those are probably massive paperweights. Right. And this guy here, he has how many books in the series? Because the television show that we're talking about is, what is it, on HBO, is it? Or yep. Showtime or something? HBO. HBO, okay. And and he wrote a bunch of books and they picked them up similar to how Dexter happened. And sure enough, we have a television show called Game of Thrones. To be clear, a Game of Thrones is the name of the first book in the series. The series, I believe, is actually called A Song of Fire and Ice. Ice and or, Fire. Uh, Ice and Fire, sorry. So the whole series of television shows is called Game of Thrones, but that's only the name of the first book. I have actually started reading the books. I have been told by somebody who has both watched the show and read the books that the first season and the first book line up very, very well. But once you get into the second book, you'll start to see some divergence. I think it's fair to say from what I've read, and by the way, it's really hard to do a type in Game of Thrones on the internet and not get spoiled. Right. The major character dies in the first season. Season, at the end of the ninth episode, the second to last episode, and that got spoiled because I was just looking up something on it and, and said, and following the death of this character, so it wasn't even ent- you know, an entry on that character's page on Wikipedia or whatever it was, but so many things are overlapping that if a character dies, there's a good chance it'll have ramifications in some other character's story, and I just had to try to avoid looking at these things from now on. Right. And even so, I've still managed to stumble into other spoilers. So really, don't go looking for stuff online for more information. If either watch the show or read the books and get you spoil yourself through that experience, but trying to do any research or going to end up hurting yourself. I Actually, I like the game Game of Thrones personally as a title better than A Song of Ice and Fire. So do I. And, and it does kind of describe at least the focus of the series, which is, at least in the first two seasons, the battle for power. Yeah, and that's especially the, a big theme in the second season. I think it's fair to say that, that from my understanding is that all the big notes, if you were looking at the series in broad strokes, the novel series in broad strokes, TV series hits that. If you get into details, then there's a lot of variation and I don't think any of us have read the novels. I just started reading the first one. You just started reading the first one? I'm actually on the second one because okay. I just asked the person who had watched the television series and read the book because I got like 100 pages in and it was exactly the same as the TV show. I was like, is it exactly the same? Because I'll just skip to book two. She was like, yeah, you can skip to book two. But So none of us have actually even read a full book yet. Right. right. We don't mean to offend the Game of Thrones diehards and we know there are those of you out there that are Game of Thrones diehards. Michelle so Barkley. we are focusing on the show and the show is different in details, but so far, the major events of the books are there. Okay, I'm going to fess up that I'm probably going to screw something up tonight because there is a huge cast of characters involved in this story, and I oftentimes get confused when such is the case. So there are a number of different kingdoms and families and relationships, so if I make any mistakes, I apologize in advance. It's just a lot to take in. I have at least, well, as I was going through, I started taking notes when I, I sat down to start from the beginning last 
last Friday. I think I have at least a page and a half of notes on every single episode. Right. Like to keep now, track. These yeah, these no. are fairly dense stories going on. And I wasn't like taking very copious notes. It was just highlighting certain lines of dialogue and like major scenes. And yeah, it's it's a lot. Like I keep forgetting. I think it's Lancel. He's, he's like one of the, the lesser Lannisters running around the story. And the name's mentioned like a dozen times in the series. And I just kept, oh, what the hell is his name again? <laughs> yeah, it just gets very tough. We're definitely going to focus on the television show only as a result. Similar to how we did it with Dexter, we pretty much just talked about the television show and not the books. I'll be like you, Eric, where I'm going to probably, when someone says a name, I'll have to say, uh, now who's that character? And then you guys will say, oh, he's the guy with the long beard that's bald. Oh, yeah, then I know who he is. Because, like you said, Eric, there's a huge ensemble cast in this television series, and so I assume that would be the case in the books as well. So they bump around continuously throughout. Think of Lost, but, you know, ten times more characters than Lost. Um, <laughs> and a lot more exciting. A lot, oh, my God. And actually, that's something that I should point out, is there is a lot of stuff in this show that happens off-screen, because it's still a TV show, and it still has a budget to it. And so there's a lot of times where major battles are hinted at, or you see the ramifications afterwards, or the events leading up to it. You don't necessarily see, especially in the first season, right. um, nearly as much sword and sorcery stuff as you might think. If you go into this expecting it to be Lord of the Rings, imagine Lord of the Rings with all the battle scenes cut out and just focusing on the characters, and you'll have a better idea of what the series is. However, it's much more political intrigue. And also, it, it doesn't have the fabulous beasts, at least not yet, as Lord of the Rings. So, so you're not going to find elves and dwarfs and all that. Uh, and unlike Greek mythology, you're not going to find things like centaurs or satyrs or anything like that. It's but like Greek mythology, human. there's a lot of sex. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of human characters. Although you do get the occasional beastie. You do, you do. And we'll, we'll get into those beasties. The final scene of each of the two seasons has been, shall we say, a beastie. That's right. right. Or a monster the, of sorts. And the first scene of episode one in season one, also, there, there's a, a beastie as well. And then pretty much besides three episodes, episodes and occasional here and there in the second season there's really not many now let's just go over the author quick before we, we start into the show yeah he's from new jersey 64 he basically was a science fiction writer first when he was younger and has been nominated numerous times for such awards as the hugo award and the nebula award he's a member of the science fiction and fantasy writers of america he's been published in analog magazine which is the same magazine that john w campbell the author of who goes there or better known as the thing he was the editor of that magazine, the same magazine that brought Dune to everybody's attention. Then, of course, he has other books and whatnot, but the books in the series of Song of Ice and Fire are, as we said, The Game of Thrones, that was from 1996, A Clash of Kings, 1998, A Storm of Swords, which was 2000, A Feast for Crows, which was 2005. So, as you can see, he has a big jump between books. To get that book was a five-year length of time. And then, of course, the most recent, A Dance with Dragons, was 2011. That was six years between books. And so people have joked about how he may pass away before the series finishes. Similar to what uh, happened to Richard Jordan and his fans for his books. There's one other book that's forthcoming. Well, there's two, but the first is The Winds of Winter, and the second is A Dream of Spring, and neither have been released yet. Now, now in the, fairness to those who fear for his death, he is 64 years old, he is overweight, and he has a fondness for food. 
Yes. And, I, and by which I mean, I don't mean spinach. Yeah. And the, the good news for fans of his books is that I've been told that it diverges at season two. I haven't read book two all the way through yet. But the first book and season, as far as I can tell, is a fantastic adaptation because there are quotes in the series just lifted directly off of the page. So that's pretty cool. Where should we go from here? Well, well, why don't we explain what it's about? My guess, based off of the map, at the beginning of every episode, they have credits and it's a pretty cool credit scene, as we discussed. And the music is one that gets stuck in your head. But it's a map and it looks like it's Europe, specifically the UK and northern France, like Brittany and such. Is that the case? Is this like an alternate reality or alternate timeline? No, I've got a, a full map of the world here in front of me and it is, it is not parallel world. Okay, so it's completely made up similar to Middle Earth. Right. So, right. Yep. But I do think you could probably find very rough parallels between the different houses and kingdoms and, and some real world historical nations or kingdoms and so forth. I think like obviously there's elements of Genghis Khan and the Huns or the Horde in the Dothraki. Certainly you get something of you know the northern kings and English kings in the House of Stark. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, like King Alfred the Great or whatever. But similar to like I guess Middle Earth where you know the Boromir and all his people were similar to the English and then the Rough Rider group, I forget what they were called, were similar to the Norwegians. Here there's similar parallels with the real world. Now what do you think makes these books, even though we haven't read them, but obviously they're very popular because they decided to make a, a movie or basically many movies on television. But like we said, there's not many beasties, at least not yet. And it's mostly all people with large ensemble cast. What do you think is the attraction? Because, you know, it's not you can't say it's like Middle Earth because it doesn't have all the magic and the wizards and all that stuff by any means. Uh, I think it's the political intrigue. I emailed you two guys a link. It's actually an infographic that shows you all the houses of the families involved with the story. And let's see, there's one, two, three, four, Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine main houses here. They're, they all have, you know, intermarriages and connections and rivalries and the basic overarching story that's going on here is that there are seven kingdoms here. At one point, they were all separate and then some event happened, which I'm not so clear on. It became decided that they would all be ruled under one king and the king that was recently ruler of them all was basically assassinated and now people are scrambling to try and get that thrown for themselves. And that's basically where everything starts. Right, because there is reason to doubt the existing line of succession, shall we say. Right. Yeah, what's interesting is it is littered with details and there's a lot of reward to be found in rewatching the series. Oh, absolutely. Imagine, for example, one of the lead characters is a character by the name of Jon Snow. And halfway through the first season, Jon Snow is given his own sword. And the sword has a, a pommel of a wolf's head, which is the symbol of his house, well, his father's house. Right. And if you're not paying attention, I mean, it is an important moment in the series. It's an important moment for the character. It's a show of a sign of respect and the future other characters have planned for Jon Snow. But if you're not paying attention, you'll miss the fact that that sword is supposed to belong to a completely different character and involved in a completely different storyline another continent away. And that was supposed to be his sword, but because he was banished from the kingdom, right? you might not pick up that these two characters are a father and son, the man who gives him the sword and, you know, his 
disgraced son who's been exiled to another continent. It's easy to miss that unless you really pay close attention to characters and character names. And there are so many characters. I don't and know. a lot of the names are similar, which is just no fair. But I thought there was a character they had to change the name for or something. They had to tweak the name a little bit because it was too similar to other names in the story. Uh-huh. I don't remember which one it was. I think that was it. But again, I haven't gotten deep enough into the books to even say that. I'm just like literally on chapter two. Right. But yeah, there's a lot of little things that are just rewarded and it's built in detail. And honestly, the acting is excellent. The writing is excellent. And if that doesn't draw you in, there's lots of tits. There are indeed. There's actually a full frontal movie. True. No, but there's not nearly as much as there are just tits. Boobs. Yeah, boobs flying lots, all over the place. Lots and lots of boobs. Well, one of the major things about this world that this whole series takes place in is that horrors are a fact of life. They're just around and they're a fact in the real world, but they don't walk around naked all the time in the real world, at least not out where people can see them. In right. this world, it's kind of understood that men lie with horrors and it's it's understood but not really spoken about unless you're in close company. There was a line in the second season. I don't know if it's in the books or not. The two characters are speaking. I was always wondering if this was a, a sort of a nod to the amount of nudity in the story where uh, one character says, why are all the gods such vicious cunts? Why isn't there a god of tits and wine? <laughs> and yeah. The other character says, in whatever aisles, there's a goddess who's claimed to have 16 teats. It kind of made me laugh because it, this is a sh- show that is very much obsessed with, with sex. There is an actually very good Saturday Night Live skit that mocks the series and its use of nudity. Yeah, I haven't seen that, but I've heard about it. Yeah, for those folks who are, live in other countries or the United States, anything over an R rating usually doesn't do well or isn't even played at theaters. An R rated is basically 18 and older. Or you can be under 18 with a parent. Anything over that, you could only be. An NC-17 would be nobody under 17 under any circumstances. And here in the States, however, television doesn't necessarily have that, especially cable television. And so there's a huge amount of folks who have been able to produce shows, including non-pay channels like FX, where, you know, a show called like Nip Tuck, which was a pretty famous show for a few years. It may actually still be. But the graphic nudity specifically, especially in the United States, where that's considered more of an issue than, say, violence in media. Well, and honestly, I think it's it's allowing cable stations to make better TV shows because they don't have the limitations. Like, you'll notice that all the series we've talked about on this podcast, they're cable shows because they're the good ones. Yeah, pretty much. We obviously did talk about Supernatural. That was obviously an exception. Is that a network show? I thought that was a cable show. That's actually a network show. Yeah, so that's one thing in this show, which you mentioned, Mike, specifically, is the nudity and sex that is in this show. That's one thing that has made it stand out even more so than, say, True Blood. But you can argue whether it's a grindhouse type feel or exploitation type feel, but it has worked, and most people don't have a problem with it based off of the popularity of the show, I would think. Right. When you are a cable series, it is just a very different dynamic. They own the show, clearly, which is not always the case with networks because it sometimes gets political. You can have a Warner Brothers show airing on NBC. And so, you know, NBC won't get very much of the DVD sales, where HBO gets everything. And my understanding was that first season of Game of Thrones cost somewhere around $60 million to make the first season, which is $6 million an episode, which is a lot for a first season of a TV series when the actors haven't started getting a shitload of money. And it basically made all that back the first weekend of DVD sales. Right. So they can afford to start pumping more out. But they've also been able to take things slowly. HBO doesn't put on three or four shows every night, and they've been building and and exploring and testing these waters going way, way back to its very earliest days. They've made more and more must-see shows, like The Sopranos and Ah, that's just kind of grown. You know, what's interesting, too, about these cable shows is that they're usually around 12 episodes versus, say, Supernatural or Lost, where they go to 22 to 24 episodes. And yet, like you said, Mike, they're still pulling in the same amount per season when they sell them to the regular 
go market on DVD as, say, a 24-season episode from, like, Supernatural. There's a reason for that, which is that a lot of the network shows are just, like, disposable entertainment. I mean, Friends, for example, amusing show. Do you really want to go back and watch it again? I don't know. I'm not going to buy those on DVD. But like Mike was just saying with Game of Thrones, this has a lot of rewatch value. You can go back and pick up details that you missed the first time and put significance to actions that you didn't the first time through, and it's absolutely worth buying them on disc, and that's probably why they make so much money on them. It also helps that they don't have to stop every 15 minutes for commercials, which means you're less likely to change the channel, get up and get a drink, or somehow find yourself get distracted, so you do tend to pay more attention. HBO tends to run their series sort of sequentially, so Game of Thrones, is as we record this, it's starting up again in a week. I don't know what's on HBO right now, but say in a week from now, Game of Thrones will start. That'll run for 12 weeks, and then the week that ends, True Blood will start. As soon as as that's over, Boardwalk Empire will start, and it just is going on this constant cycle. So they're always having new content out there, as opposed to the networks which are beholden to sweeps, and people always say, well, why does the show disappear for months on end? It's because they want to keep all the shows available for these sweeps weeks, or their ratings weeks, in November, February, and May. And so you don't get anything new, usually in December and January, on a network show. Or March and April, which is where we are now. I had no idea season three is coming up in a week and a half, so it's well time that we are doing this episode right now. Where do you guys want to begin? (laughs) I think it would be a fool's task to try and cover every single plot element of the first two seasons in one episode. In the beginning, there was no... um... Yeah, so what what we'll do is, same with, I guess, what we did with Dexter and Supernatural and talk about the main plot points and characters. Can we actually start with the opening credits for a second? It's silly, but I'd say, first of all, because there is the opening score and by Raman Dewadi, I think is how you pronounce his name. It is uh, a Persian name and I have no idea how to pronounce it correctly. And he's a, I'm guessing a relatively young composer. His first credit is 2001. So he's been around for about 10 years, but doing a lot of little stuff. Has worked apparently with Hans Zimmer a few times. The first time I became aware of him was that he scored the new Fright Night, the remake of that, and I really liked that score. Okay. He also did, let's see, Mr. Brooks, Safe House, Red Dawn. He's doing the score for Pacific Rim. He'd done a few TV series like Prison Break. But yeah, it is a very catchy opening theme tune, sort of very sweeping and majestic, which we sort of hummed badly at the beginning. But what's interesting about the opening credits is it's sort of like over a map. I just want to interject one second here. Ramin Dojawadi is actually German, and his father is of Iranian descent, and his mother is of German descent. But he is a German citizen. And I guess, yeah, he's probably one of the up-and-coming future John Williamses and Maurice Jarre's Jerry Goldsmith, Bernard Herman, maybe. Well, it'll be interesting to see, because you do have people like Gene Cano, and I can't remember the name of the one who does Walking Dead and had done Battlestar Galactic before that. There are a number of up-and-coming film composers, movie and TV composers that are really interesting. The show starts, again, it's Game of Thrones, and it starts out with a map that lays out all the different places, and the camera moves over, and I'm imagining it's CGI, but it's very effectively done, that it looks like the cities sort of raise themselves up as if they're like these very elaborate tinker toys, and these uh, clockwork gears, and yeah, and you can clearly recognize them, and it's a great way to introduce it, you know, and usually the sigil, like, so the Winterfell is House Stark, and you can see the sigil of the wolf spinning around, and the holy tree in the backyard growing, and you'll start to recognize some of those landmarks as the series goes along, so it does give you a sense of space, and, you know, like, we go back to uh, Dothrak, where the Dothraki hordes are, and we see that's way off in the east, and separate from that across the ocean, and so that gives you a good sense of place. One of the interesting things is underneath a sun, and there's an astrolabe that keeps passing in front of the camera that's sort of hovering over the whole thing and you watch these rings sort of spinning and if you look carefully on the rings it tells the history of the backstory of Westeros which is the, the continent where it's set where you have the dragon and you have it's like a thing with the dragon 
dragon ruling over the other animals. Then you have the next time you see it, you see the other animals fighting the dragon he just carved into the ring. And then finally, the last thing is of the, the other animals now bowing before the stag, who's the one that takes over for House Baratheon. So they do actually sort of seed it in there. It's a very subtle thing. It's easy to miss unless you're really paying attention to it. Right. And as each character's name comes up, or each actor's name, there's a little sigil next to their name, which is the sigil of the house that their character belongs to. I never even noticed that. So for Jackie Gleason, plays Joffrey Baratheon. You know, he has a little stag picture next to him. And Tyrion Lannister is Peter Dinklage, has a little lion next to him. So little details like that. And again, that's sort of what keeps, I think, viewers in is little details. Attention to detail in the opening credits like that, you can usually expect to see it in the show itself. Right. Now, the two creators of the show, Dave Benioff and Dan Wise, I'm not really too familiar with them that much. I know Dave Benioff wrote one of the X-Men films, and Dan Wise was the guy that wrote screenplay for the Halo movie that never came. So, otherwise, I don't know too much about them, but somehow they were able to get this show off the ground, and they actually do the writing for most of the episodes. It seems like they really were just small players until this. But again, this is another one of these things where it's so easy for people to get hung up on names, and with this series, really the only names going into it that were Peter Dinklage and Sean Bean, right? I mean, there's some characters there with some notoriety, but nobody huge, right? Lena Headey is kind of a name, but not huge. I knew Lena Headey through a couple of things, mostly from the Terminator TV series she played, Mm -hmm. Sarah Connor, and there was something else I knew her from. 300. But 300, I knew her from 300, that was it. But I don't think she was like, oh my god, Lena Headey's in it. The average viewer wouldn't know who that was. In fact, even Sean Bean, a lot of people wouldn't know who he was, and a lot of people wouldn't know, I think, who Peter Dinklage necessarily was. Film buffs maybe knew who they were. I would have had no idea who Peter Dinklage was. The only people that I knew was Lena Headey because of 300, and I knew of the guy that plays her brother, Nikolai Costa-Wado, from various small roles in films like Mummer and Black Hawk Down. And then the only other person, of course, was Sean Bean. And even if you didn't know his name, a lot of folks at this point in time probably know of him just for the fact... uh, That he gets killed at everything he does. Well, that's the running joke, but I I mean specifically because of the Lord of the Rings. He was probably the the shining star of the first film. Well, to be clear, though, even though there are a lot of big names in the series, the acting level is far (laughs) superior to what you find in most television shows. Right, Well, which is my point, is that we can get hung up on who are they casting as so-and-so, and and really, there is so much good talent out there that you shouldn't just let that get in your way. I don't think the show would have been better if they'd cast Robert Downey Jr. as Lord Stark. That would be horrible. Well, and you know what? It doesn't matter either because, I mean, you know, like Lost, it was just a bunch of unknowns. They throw them together and a lot of them specifically actors that play like Sawyer and, you know, they shined and when the show disappears, they all disappear themselves. Most of them do. But here, whether any of these people will disappear when the show is gone, it doesn't really matter because, I mean, Dexter's another one. I mean, I didn't know any of those actors until I saw that show here. Pretty much the same thing. But as you said, Mike, there's plenty of talent out there. If you get the right people for the right roles, whether or not they become famous or will ever be famous, it doesn't matter because what matters is how the show is. And, and with the screenwriting and the correct actors and the spots with the correct direction, there you go. Yep. Right. Like, should we frame it for those who maybe don't know? There's just, just the basic framework is that there are, Eric, you mentioned there's, what was it, seven major houses? But the show really focuses on four. Right. We might do it by accident. So let's throw up a spoiler warning here just in case. If you're interested in this type of show with, you know, the uh, knights and battles and political intrigue between royal houses, do yourself a favor and check it out. And we're going to start talking about plot and characters, and we might let something slip. Right. If you were a fan of something like the Henry VIII series on Showtime, or I can't think of the name of the show with Jeremy Iron is on Stars, The Borges. 
And you get that sort of political intrigue set in a fantasy world. Again, if, if you're more interested in the swords and sorcery aspect, then this might not appeal as much to you if you go in expecting that. If you want to see some people really manipulating pieces on a chessboard and, and inner politics and just really great acting and great character work and great dialogue. And also, yeah. also I might great boobs too. <laughs> and, and tits. Yes. And lots of tits. And by the way, a relatively little CGI in this, like all the scenery, the beautiful scenery, it's all set on location. They actually did travel to the world of Westeros to film this. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Mike, I want to interject here because since you brought that up, the places that they filmed this show, there's a number of places. They actually go on location. They've been to Northern Ireland, Malta, which is a nation in the Mediterranean. The nation Iceland. Of, the nation, yep, Iceland, the nation of Croatia, Scotland, of course, Morocco, and the United States. So they've gone all over the place to film. So they're actually not just doing sets on a soundstage. They're going places. Yeah, they're yep. not messing around. And some absolutely gorgeous locations and some really, really nice stuff. And beautifully was, filmed show it is and i was watching some interviews with the actors and they were saying that it actually does the show a great service by being on location like that because not only not have to worry about the set looking real because it's not a set but like for instance some of the show is set up north where it's all snowy and cold and when it's actually snowy and cold the actor doesn't have to worry about acting like he's cold because he's cold right yeah there's no thing prequel where there's cgi breath going on that's real breath now i'm going to start off by asking you guys about something because this was a new concept to me and it's kind of the beginning of the setup of the plot here the setup of the whole series so before this story have you guys ever heard of the concept the hand of the king no i never did until this it was confusing to me every time it came up even though eventually you know you kind of get the idea what they're talking about but go ahead and explain okay so as the series opens well first of all there's an opening scene that's awesome that we might talk about a little bit later where the plot really begins is that there's the king who rules over all the seven kingdoms they have a they call it the small council it's basically a set of advisors that they have that deal and with what, the small matters right the little right. things the king can't be bothered with basically they're just a group of advisors it's sort of like the president's cabinet right there's one of them is called the hand of the king and their job is basically to take care of all the stuff that the king doesn't want to take care of like for instance there's a part of the story where the king goes hunting so while the king is off hunting the hand of the king sits on the throne and listens to people bitch and basically address all their issues on behalf of the king. And that's pretty much what the hand of the king does is carries out things for the king that the king is either too busy to deal with or just doesn't want to deal with. You know what this almost reminds me of? It reminds me of Kaiser uh, of Germany or Prussia. And then his prime minister, which was Bismarck, was the guy that was really running the show. So it's similar to that where you get the king and he does what he does, or in Germany's case, the Kaiser. But then you have Bismarck, who's the prime minister. He's the real powerhouse behind Germany. This is similar to the hand. If he really wanted to be powerful more so than he really was as they portray in the show he probably could be right i would say he's more like the hand of the king in the united states if you go where there would be sort of a chief of staff in that they deal with all the stuff behind the scenes where the big ceremonial stuff tends to go to the president the president still right. appoints who he wants as his, as his chief, chief of staff but the chief of staff is his really his closest and most important advisor far more so in most cases than the vice president in the united states even though there's a defined way of looking at the positions the chief of staff is usually considered the third most powerful position in the United States, number two is usually the Secretary of State. So looking right. at the, the wiki Vice and Fire, the, the small council, the Hand of the King, who's again the sort of the Chief of Staff, the Commander of the King's Guard, who's the head of the local armed militia, there's the Master of Coin, who would be you know in charge of the money, Master of Laws, who I guess would be like the Attorney General, Master of Whispers, who is the intelligence head, Master of Ships, who runs the Navy, and then there's the Grandmeister, who is sort of the expert and the sage counsel, the wise and informed person, the learned person, who sort of advises everybody. And there's one of those sort of established 
established in every town. This is going to be important to the, the politics of the show because so much of it is comes down to the interplay between the characters here, especially the ones at the start of the series. Right. So as the series opens, it's set in the north, a place called Winterfell, and we are looking at the Stark family, headed up by Eddard, also known as Ned. Well, again, should we put the families in their perspective, who they are? When you say perspective, Mike, do you mean like this family obviously is a nod to the Anglo-Saxon? Right. There's the Stark, who are, for all intents and purposes, the main family in the series. They're nominally the lead, or at least certainly in the first season, because they have so many kids that we follow. And as I said, they're more Anglo-Saxon. They have a sigil of a wolf. You get the sense that the family values are very much family and loyalty and duty and honor is what they're mostly about. There's the Baratheons, who are the ones that are currently in charge. And their symbol is a stag. And it's at the beginning of the series, it's Robert Baratheon is the king. And he's the best friend of Ned Stark, who's the head of the Stark family. There's the Lannisters, who I, I'm guessing would be more of a French sort of thing, Phil. Yeah, I would agree with that. But sort of a dickish French, even for <laughs> French. And blonde, very, very blonde. But they're noted for their vast wealth. And you can't help but notice that in the king's castle, in the, what's called the Red Keep, that the king is surrounded by an awful lot of blonde heads. King is married to one of the Lannisters. The queen is a Lannister. Now, now and, the Baratheon family, which is the king, what would you call him? Like he's like the Danish or like the Jutes or something like that, maybe? He's like Santa Claus. He's fat and jolly. That seems to be his, until he gets he gets drunk. Well, except um, he likes to kill things. So that's not very Santa-like. Yeah, so he married one of the Lannisters. So again, he brings all the blonde folks. He brings one of those folks into, I guess, power in a sense, because he's married to one of them. Right. And they're the most, by far the most wealthy people in the realm. And the queen's twin brother, Jamie, is the head of the King's Guard. And he's actually the one who has killed the former king. Then he's called the Kingslayer, although that's, which you would think is, is supposed to be a cool thing, but it's uh, meant as an insult. Right. Uh, and that's gets to the fourth family, which are the Targaryens, and their symbol is the dragon. And they're out of power. And they're pretty much wiped out. They're almost extinct, except for two or perhaps three members, depending on your theories. That Robert, the current king, killed Eris II, who was a Targaryen, also known as the Mad King, because he just pretty much started doing what he wanted and executing people all over the place. So Robert led a rebellion and ended up taking the throne for himself. And the Targaryens have now been, I don't know if, the, if they've been officially banished, but they certainly don't want to stick around because they are hated by all at this point. And they've gone to a different continent. There's actually something in there in the story that, yeah, the Mad King, the Targaryens, again, their symbols of dragon. At one point, the legend is they did ride dragons and that's how they conquered the Seven Kingdoms. And one of the dragons took all the swords of their enemies and melted them down to form the Iron Throne, which is, you know, the Throne of Thrones. Yes. And they actually, like you said, fled from the realm and are in another continent, more like a desert or Persian type continent. So I'm, I'm not sure if they're trying to portray it as like the Phoenicians or Egyptians or well, Persians this, the, or whatnot. The, Tar the Targaryens, we find out, interbred for about 300 years to keep the power in the family. And, you know, therefore, some of them came out a little wackadoo. And the Mad right. King is the one that kind of went nuts, killed everybody, and started the rebellion. And supposedly, I think it was Jamie Lannister had a chance to step into the throne, but he was told to step down, and he did. And Stark didn't take it, and they basically gave it over to Robert right. to become the king. And there are only two Targaryens left All at the, the beginning of the show, and they're 
brother and sister. They're Viserys and Daenerys. However, it's pretty apparent from the outset that due to their family practices, their relationship might be a little bit complicated. Yeah, because of this that whole incest thing I, I stated. And, and Varys yeah. is a giant dick. Yeah. Um, and if it wasn't for, you know, the fact he doesn't stay in the series very long, he could possibly be the biggest Spoiler. dick on television. But it is one of the most awesome scenes ever in TV history. It is. It is. Uh, and, uh, at the beginning of the series, in the first episode, what basically happens is that Viserys pretty much marries off his sister to a character named Khal Drogo, who is the horse lord of the Dothraki on this right. other continent. So he's trying to form power alliances on this other continent. And what would you call the Dothrakian people? Genghis Khan and his horde, probably. Yeah, yeah that would that would work. And horse riders, they and they they ride wherever they go, and they and people just throw slaves at them, hoping they'll they'll leave them alone. And just just bring this point because I wanted to mention it while we're talking about the series. There is a Dothraki language that they actually developed for the television series, and there's a dictionary out there, and you can learn Dothraki if you want it, to. Isn't that just and, Klingon? I thought it was Klingon. Well, that's uh, that's what I was about to compare it to. It's the only fictional language I know of that's come about through television, except for Klingon. Now, it's not actually in the books. They mentioned some words in the books, but they didn't develop the language fully in the books, but they did have actual like language people from universities develop the Dothraki language for the series. And there was a large portion, almost all the scenes with the Targaryen heirs are very heavy in Dothrak. You know, there's a lot of speaking of that in the first season. Before we continue, I would like to say that anybody who's still listening and not said, well, I'll wait until next week's episode, I'm very impressed because, as you can see, there's hundreds of characters and we're just talking about the families. We're not going to go through detail and detail, but it is kind of important to know where the chess pieces are at the start of the game. Right. I will say this. I watched the show and I liked it. I really got hooked with the end of, I think, the sixth episode. Oh, uh, yeah. What was sixth episode? That was, that uh, was uh, Crown of the Gold. The Golden Crown. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then, I think I was just homesick for a weekend, rewatched the episodes online, and I realized that the show makes a whole lot more sense the second time through because you actually understand what's going on and you know who is who. There's a lot of stuff dropped in the very first episode and there's so many characters that it's hard to remember. For example, that the king, Robert Baratheon, was engaged to marry Ned Stark's sister. Right. And it does come up repeatedly in the series. Ned Stark is Sean Bean. Yes. Yeah. Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm, I, Eddard, the House Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, sentence you to die. understand why I did it. John said he was a deserter. But do you understand why I had to kill him? Oh, where's the old way? The man who passes a sentence should swing the sword. Is it Trace or the White Walkers? The White Walkers have been gone for thousands of years. So he was lying. Madman sees what he sees. So 
as the series begins, we're pretty much along for the ride with the Stark family in Winterfell, and they get news that King Robert's hand, who is John Aaron, has died. And they also get word that King Robert is on his way to Winterfell and quickly conclude that the only reason he can possibly be traveling to Winterfell himself in person is to ask Eddard to be the new hand of the king. And Eddard is possibly the least political person that has ever sat on the throne. Yes. If he could have his way, he would probably just find his country or people or his land be this little independent nation that just wouldn't be bothered by anybody. Exactly. It, it's mentioned at one point later in the series, I think in the second season, where one of his sons has said, is speaking about his father, and he, and he says that he always said that being the Lord, you woke up worried and you went to bed worried, and it was like having a thousand children, you know, and you're always worried and concerned for them. And that's sort of Stark's attitude towards his power. It's, it's something of responsibility. A very big scene at the beginning of the series is that someone has to be executed, and Stark, first of all, he has all his male children watching him execute this person, but he insists on swinging the sword himself because he said the man who passes sentence should be the one who swings the sword. And that pissed me off, too, because I don't think that guy should have been executed. No. That's debatable depending on what you think of the laws they have in place. This is also another very important point, and this is a huge subplot that we are still waiting to come to fruition, although it is obviously moving. We see it moving. This is meant as an undercurrent, as the threat that's going on while nobody's paying attention. Right. And one of the, the neat things about about Westeros, which is the, the land where this is set, is that the seasons are all fucked up. They do not have years the way we have years. They don't go through a regular four-season cycle. That you can have years of summer followed by years of winter. And we are in, they say they're in like one of the longest summers it's been. I think they said nine years since the last winter, and even that was a mild winter. Right. Uh, and the Stark family slogan is winter is coming, which is meant to mean that bad things will be coming and you will have to prepare for them. But it is basically the overarching threat hanging over the series is that summer is about to end and winter is coming and in this case it's the idea that winter will be bringing with it some monsters from the north there is a wall sort of a really 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 big wall Right. Imagine the Great Wall of China on steroids that separates the far north from the south. The production people have basically said that above the, the wall, it's it's Iceland and below the wall, it's Ireland. Just visually, if you want to get that picture. But um, yeah, so this wall and this wall is guarded by something called the Night's Watch. And people who join the Night's Watch are pledged to fealty to that. They're never allowed to marry. They're never allowed to have sex. And any deserters are executed. You're probably right on target about that wall because north of the wall is probably where they did do the Iceland on site. And right. then yeah. The southern part was probably Northern Ireland. Right, right, but even though it's been thousands of years, literally, since the giants and things came from out of the north, or and they talk about white walkers, and, and you get a hint of that in the teaser to the series, people have kind of dismissed it. Some people still believe the legends, but a lot of people, oh, those are just old fairy tales that have been exaggerated. And, and it's been 3,000 years since they've seen the white walkers, so many people just treat them as kind of an urban myth. As the series opens, the very, very first scene is these members of the Night Watch up north they're investigating a group of people that they were interested in seeing what they were up to and they basically find them all dead and something bad happens to these people and this guy basically takes off because he sees this horrible thing that happened to all these people and is the only survivor and then the poor dude gets executed and he says I want you to know I'm not a coward I didn't mean to abandon my position he came to warn people right. he's trying to be chicken little And but Ned is someone who's very hidebound to duty and the Stark family is one that's always supported the night Watch and had a lot of family members on the Night's Watch. In fact, one of the most prominent members of it is their uncle Benjamin, who becomes 
a somewhat important figure later on. Well, and it's important to note that one of the qualities of joining the Night's Watch is you end up going beyond the reach of the law of the land. If you're a member of the Night Watch, any crime you've committed in the past, anything that's happened having to do with the law of the kings is no longer an issue for you because you're a member of the Night Watch and you're committed to that for the rest of your life. No, that doesn't excuse you from future crime, but basically it's a pardon. Well, either we execute you or go to join the Night's Watch. And so many people join the Night's Watch for that reason. And that's, we later find out that as storied as they are and, and, and heralded as they are, when you actually get to meet the real ones, there are a lot of liars and thieves and cutthroats and perverts and cowards are actually what are manning the wall. You're not allowed to marry or anything like that if you do it. So it's almost like joining the priesthood, except that you're guarding a wall. Or it could be like joining the army. If you're young and you troubled youth, a lot of those people join the army for just some direction. And that's kind of what the Night's Watch accomplishes here, too. It's true. There is a scene in the second season where a woman is trying to seduce one of the members of the Night's Watch. And, you know, she says, so the boys just do it with each other then. He's like, no, no, no. It's like, well, you don't have sheep on the wall. He's like, no. So you just use your hands. No wonder you're always so in such a bad mood. You know, the idea is it is a very lonely life and it's just a bunch of discontented men stuck together forever. Right. It seems like at one point, being a member of the Night's Watch might have been an honorable thing to be proud of and that it's not anymore. Did you guys get that? That impression? Yes, I did actually. Somewhere, whether it's in the novels or not, any listeners that have read the novels, they can email us and let us know. It can be assumed that somewhere along the line, it turned into a place of criminals and weirdos and whatever to just dump them. They would lead a basically a boring life. One character, Sam, is sent there because he's basically a coward and his father says, if you know you don't go join the watch, I'm going to kill you because he doesn't want him around the house anymore. And because he's the oldest child, he would have been his heir. There's another one who, who's exiled because of the Lord basically tries to touch his wiener and, and he rejects him and you know he didn't like that and it was basically either get his hand cut off or go join the watch and it's kind of typical I guess in some ways of what you would expect of a land where you do have that still authority in the hands of a few people with absolutely no sense of popular rule and a lot of pledge fealty is that the lords are often of whatever their kingdoms are have almost absolute authority in many ways and some of them are really dickish Yeah, and you know, the night's watch is a way to escape that yes so getting back to the Starks. Well, now I, I don't know where you want to go from here because uh, slogging through the plot is going to be a bit much. Basic but there's some line, things we want to hit on. Well, the basic thing is like what you said, that Robert comes, offers Ned to be the hand. Ned, because he has such a strong sense of duty to the regret of his wife, agrees to become the hand and travels south to King's Landing, which is basically the capital. While they're there, the entire Lannister clan shows up. Again, the idea of how much they've infused themselves into the power structure. The marriage between Robert the King and Cersei, his queen, was clearly a political arrangement. These two did not fall in love and want to live happily ever after. Well, uh, one of the was... things that they give him credit for is they do develop the character of Cersei, I think, fairly well, and she does say she was in love with Robert. It just Robert never returned it. Uh, did that get stated at some point? Yes. I missed it. Okay. I was under the impression that it was, that it was a complete political thing and they, they were they were never really in love with each other. Well, I think it's something like there are parallels. As part of this deal, Robert wants to bring his family and Ned's family closer together. So he has a son, Prince Joffrey, and Ned has a daughter, Sansa, who's just about to come into her womanhood. Right. And so they agree that they shall be wed in a political marriage. And Sansa is your typical girl, very girly girl. And she just loves the idea of marrying a prince and being a prince 
princess and a queen. Right. Now, to be fair, for those of you who are of the more feminist persuasion, she's not at the beginning of the series intended to be a character to be respected. And she does have a younger sister, Arya, who is much more tomboyish and is, becomes a very central character later on. In fact, there's a great line at one point where Ned Stark and Sansa and Arya are all in a room together talking about how this marriage is going to be arranged. And Sansa's all about it. She wants to marry the prince. And Ned says to her, Sansa, someday you'll marry somebody strong and proud and brave. And Sansa just blurts out, I don't want anybody like that. I want Joffrey. Yes. <laughs> and Arya and Ned just kind of look at each other and try not to start laughing because she doesn't even realize what she just said. Right. And Joffrey is a brat. And by now, I think it's fair to say he's possibly the most hated person in the world. He's a the, serious dick. He is probably the biggest asshole. And at the end of the first season, is a giant asshole. You think he couldn't get any bigger. And my, does his asshole just get wider and wider as the second season progresses? I would say that basically everybody in the Lannisters family are probably sociopaths are pretty close to it. Well, they're all up in themselves, I think it's fair to say. They do a great job in the series. If the Starks are the nominal heroes of the story, and I don't know that they necessarily are, then the Lannisters are the nominal villains, but there is a lot of shades of grey. With the exception of Joffrey and Viserys, I don't know that there's any characters that you can say black and white, good guy, bad guy. They all have their strengths, and they all have their flaws. Right, um, although I will say I've become very fond of Tyrion. He's probably my favorite character. I like right, him a but, lot. but Tyrion is still loyal to his family at this point in the show anyway. He's loyal to his family almost to a fault. And he, he does kind of get burned by that. He still is too stupid to, to take his hand out of the fire. Right. For all of his other talents. And he is a womanizer, at least at the, as the series begins. Flippin' and he doesn't take things seriously, partly because he's a dwarf. And as he says, all dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. That he's he's basically been trying to get his father's love for his entire existence on the planet. You have Jamie Lannister again, who's the Kingsguard the, and the Queen's twin brother. Brother, you know, he says, you know, he's thankful that he was born into this family because he'd be completely useless anywhere else because the only thing he can do is swing a sword. Uh-huh. Um, then speaking of swinging a sword, that's sort of what kicks off the politics of the series is that he swings his sword at his sister's direction. What? Well, not that sword, the one in his pants. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, right. What happens, basically the big event that sets 80% of our story in motion, the Targaryens are off doing their own thing over in the desert area or the grasslands, is that while the Lannisters are visiting the Starks to tell Ned Stark he's got to be Hand of the King, one of the younger Stark sons is, has a penchant for climbing the walls of the castle, and he climbs up into a tower, looks through the window, and sees the queen getting humped by her twin brother, the Jamie, the, uh, the king's guard. Mm-hmm. And so Jamie, realizing that this will be a problem, the king probably won't be happy about that, pushes Bran out the window to hopefully his death and that's certainly what I thought was going to be that's how the first episode ends and I that's about one of the things that said oh well here's a series willing to hurt small children right and actually he doesn't kill the child but he does cripple the child and we, he, the child never says what happened we don't know if he's hiding it because he's scared or if he honestly has blacked out the memory I'm pretty sure he's blacked out the memory we've gone far enough that yeah I would think so but yeah so that's what happened the Lannisters are following in the footsteps of the Targaryens and fornicating well you know what the little boy may, may not even know what they were doing right yeah yeah, they were playing naked wrestling. Well, yeah, but, I mean, people have specifically asked him what he saw, and he's just like, I don't remember. I think if he remembered something, he would at least, you know, still- even if he didn't understand it and comprehend it fully, I think he would have at least said something by now. Because he hasn't even said that he was actually pushed out the window either, right? I mean, he doesn't even remember that. He, Yeah, he doesn't. And this is what will set off the strife, is that it's this, this is the big secret for which the previous hand was killed, because the children
children of Robert Baratheon are in fact the children of Jamie Lannister and Robert has actually no children of his own and if this is discovered then when Robert dies and he does die later in the series then the power should be going to one of his brothers and not in fact to the bratty Prince Joffrey. Right. There's one other wrinkle I wanted to just throw in here just because I think it's kind of cool and it actually does come into play at certain points in the plot. At the very beginning of the show when the Starks are out trekking about the wilderness they come across the corpse of an absolutely humongous wolf which is called a dire wolf. They all get nervous because none of these things have been seen south of the wall we were talking about earlier in hundreds of years. More uh, of those ominous signs that we're talking about. Right. And it turns out that this wolf was pregnant and they, there are six wolf cubs and each of the Stark children as well as Ned Stark's bastard son Jon Snow each adopt one of the wolves as their pet. Right. Which is interesting because they're almost a way to keep track of time because you see the wolves very quickly grow from pups to full-grown wolves. They have a small role in they because they are effects required. They use real animals. The first season they use dogs. The second season they use real wolves but the wolves are mostly filmed separately and then digitally right. imposed and, in, and because they have to be larger than normal. They have to be embiggened. But even that is foreshadowing because again the, the wolf has been spelled by a, a stag. The stag is the symbol of the Baratheons and the wolf is the symbol of the Starks. Right. So this is sort of foreshadowing the clash that's going to come between Joffrey Baratheon and Ned Stark. Right. Yeah and it's really hard to kind of get into detail. The fact that we've gone this far and really have only just barely mentioned Tyrion who you know might be the best thing in the series and is certainly the most popular thing in the series. He's the series Kramer you know. Well the thing is we've gone this far and we're still talking about the first episode. That's how dense this series is. Right and but so much this has to do with so I guess three stories going on. Now who is Tyrion exactly? Which guy is he? The Imp. Oh oh, oh that, that's that's his name? It's Tyrion. Tyrion Lannister is the Imp yes. Yes. Well and his father is Tywin. Every time I hear T Lannister I have to stop and say which one was that? <laughs> and Tywin Lannister is the head of the Lannister family is played by Charles Dance. Fantastic performances he gives as sort of the best and brightest of the Lannister family. See, it's hard to say because it's so rich. There's so many characters. There's so many awesome moments. But I think it's just fair to say that there are three basic stories going on, which is on the one hand, there's the battle for the throne over who's the rightful heir to the Iron Throne. There's the Targaryen storyline of them trying to get the Dothraki to reinvade and come back and reclaim their throne. And that's happening on another continent. And then there's the story of what's going on above the wall with these possible return of these mythical creatures. Right. For the first two seasons, the bulk of the storyline is about the battle for the throne. Yes. Okay. And that's probably why they gave the name of the entire series the title of the first book, because that's really what a lot of the plot revolves around. There's also a great quote from Cersei Lannister, who at one point says to Ned Stark, when you play the Game of Thrones, you either win or you die. You die. There's also the moment, which I always loved, well, that they used heavily for the promotions was Varys's riddle about power, was where does the power truly lie? It uses the line, the power is, there's a shadow on the wall, it's illusion, power resides where men believes it resides. Right. You know, and then again, this is also part of it, is who's got the power, who's manipulating it. Because on the one hand, you have the knights doing everything sort of above the board, and then on the quieter side, you have the intelligence people, you have Tyrion Lannister, who's the imp, you have Viserys, who's the, sort of the minister of intelligence, the master of whispers, that's what it is. And the eunuch, and you, by the way. And then there's the pimp master, Littlefinger, or Lord Baelish, mm-hmm. who's got issues, and who I like a lot for some reason, I don't know why, because he is a dick, but I'm in a weird way, I root for him, and I don't know why I do, because he's a dick. Right. But I guess like, you kind of feel bad for him, because he's this guy who's been picked on his whole life, and there is a moment where he tells the queen, it's like, well, people often forget knowledge is power, and <laughs> and she tells the guards, kill him, and it's like, they bring the sword to his throat, and she's oh, no, no, wait, don't bother doing that, and she just looks at him, and she says, power is power. Right. That was a great and, scene. But, again, this is all this little interplay. Lord Baelish, 
Your Grace. I wonder if I might ask you for a favor. Of course, Your Grace. Ned Stark's youngest daughter, Arya. We can't seem to locate her. If she's escaped the capital, Winterfell seems the logical destination. And yet my friends in the north report no sign of her. Curious. If we choose to negotiate with the Starks, the girl has some value. Whoever finds her, well, you know what they say about Lannisters and debts. Well, you could ask Varys where she is. She'll have an answer for you, whether you believe it myself. I have always had a hard time trusting eunuchs. Who knows what they want? Hmm. The Mockingbird. You created your own sigil, didn't you? Yes. Appropriate for a self-made man with so many songs to sing. I'm glad you like it. Some people are fortunate enough to be born into the right family. Others have to find their own way. I heard a song once about a boy of modest means. Found his way into the home of a very prominent family. He loved the eldest daughter. Sadly, she had eyes for another. When boys and girls live in the same home, awkward situations can arise. Sometimes I've heard even brothers and sisters develop certain affections. And when those affections become common knowledge, well, that is an awkward situation. Indeed. Especially in a prominent family. Prominent families often forget a simple truth. I've found. And which truth is that? Knowledge is power. Seize him. Cut his throat. Stop. Wait. I've changed my mind. Let him go. Step back three paces. Turn around. Close your eyes. Power is power. Do see if you can take some time away from your coins and your whores to locate the star girl for me. I would very much appreciate it. I just don't know how to proceed from here because, like I said, there's so much plot, we can't get through it. Want to just hit some high points? Let's do that because, like you said, Eric, I mean, it's just so much. is so many unbelievable plot points, and each episode itself is like a mini-movie that if we do similar to what we did with Dexter and Supernatural and just bring up various characters, talk about them, and maybe some big plot points, yeah, I think that would be Well, how about we do a quick roundtable, like somebody pick something, like a favorite scene or character or moment or event, and then we'll just do uh, it, and we'll just do it once or twice. And then okay, let's talk about Tyrion. I want to talk about Tyrion. I like him. Please do. Okay, now uh, who plays Tyrion? It's Peter Dinklage. He is the dwarf, and he's uh, arguably the best actor on the show. I mean, and that's saying a lot. Right. I mean, all the all the actors on the show are fantastic, but he in particular shines in this role, and he is an actual little person and a fantastic actor. And his character in this show has basically embraced the fact that he's shunned. He lets it roll off his back. Now he doesn't. You know people make short jokes he's like yeah ha ha whatever <laughs> yeah we should we should make it clear that when we say he's a dwarf he's not a lord of the rings dwarf no no no, no. he's an he's a little person right well I'm, I'm talking with the, the the actor but even the character the character is intended to be a, a natural normal dwarf right a, a normal little person right, right. and it does say so, something to the fact that it, that if he had been born in another family he might have just been left out to die yes the only reason he's still alive is that he's a lannister uh the lannisters are a very rich family and 
he may be lacking in physical size, but he's a very smart fellow. Jon Snow asks him at one point, why do you read so much? And he answers, well, my brother has his sword. I have my mind. A mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone. So he's this clever guy and he gets caught up in some intrigue. And one of my favorite scenes with Tyrion came when he gets falsely accused of a crime and ends up in this prison, which is, first of all, just a great idea. <laughs> he gets he gets put in what's called a sky cell, which is basically, it's a prison, but it's built into the side of a cliff. So there's a door that locks him in, but then there's only three walls to the cell, and fourth missing wall is just open to a 600-foot drop off of a cliff. And I thought that concept was just awesome. Make the small man fly, mommy! So there's a there's a fantastic scene where he basically tells his guard, who's not the brightest guy in the world, that he'll give him a lot of gold if he tells the person in charge that he's going to confess his crimes. And so the guard arranges this, and he gets brought forth to confess all his crimes, and he's been accused of murdering somebody. But when he comes forth to confess his crimes, he goes back to his childhood and starts confessing all these silly things he did when he was a kid, when, like putting poop in his uncle's shoe. And, and doing all these things. He's just going on and on with all these, like, they're not crimes. They're just a kid being stupid. Eventually, they, they cut him off and said, you came here to confess your crimes. And he's like, well, that's what I'm doing. And I said, you're accused of killing so-and-so. And he's like, oh, well, I'm sorry. I didn't do that. He goes through a, a litany of euphemisms for jerking off into the soup that his sister eats. <laughs> yes. Phil, if you can find a sound clip of that, you got to put that in there because that's awesome. Right. You wish to confess your crimes. Yes, my lady. I do, my lady. Sky cells always break them. Speak, imp. Meet your gods as an honest man. Where do I begin, my lords and ladies? I'm a vile man. I confess it. My crimes and sins are beyond counting. I have lied and cheated, gambled and whored. I'm not particularly good at violence, but I'm good at convincing others to do violence for me. You want specifics, I suppose. When I was seven, I saw a servant girl bathing in the river. I stole her robe and she was forced to return to the castle naked and in tears. If I closed my eyes, I could still see her tits bouncing. When I was ten, I stuffed my uncle's boots with goat shit. When confronted with my crime, I blamed a squire. Poor boy was flogged and I escaped justice. When I was twelve, I milked my eel into a pot of turtle stew. I flogged the one-eyed snake. I skinned my sausage. I made the bald man cry into the turtle stew, which I do believe my sister ate. At least I hope she did. I once brought a jackass and a honeycomb into a brothel. Silence! What happened next? I also like when he's trying to bribe the guard, Mord, and he's like, so I promise you go. So like, you, know, you have no gold. He's like, well, sometimes possession is an abstract concept. He's trying to explain this. The guard is done to first thing is that he searches them and says, no gold. And, and Tyrion's been locked in his prison and so on. He just says, well, I don't have it on me. 
<laughs> That's just how stupid the guard is. And, funny. You know, I've, we've talked about disturbing things. One of the disturbing things is the woman who runs this is the wife of the former hand who had been murdered. And she's right. gone a little bit batshit with the, the death of her husband. And she has a young son that uh, I'm guessing she was already protective of and has gotten way overprotective of. And how old I, would you say he is? I would say seven or eight would be my guess. And what is he still doing? He's still sitting on mommy's lap, I think. Is, uh, and, is that and, what you're getting? And doing what while he's there? What was that about? I said about tits earlier. He's, he's yeah. still breastfeeding. And yep, breastfeeding he sure is. And at one point, he's like, I'm hungry, mommy. He starts untying her blouse. He's like, not now, dear. You know. <laughs> So back to Tyrion, he's a very witty character and I love that he's always making quips and jokes and just using his intelligence to give him a leg up on people where his, you know, clearly his physical abilities would not. Towards the end of season two, there's a fantastic moment where even though he's not a fierce warrior, he ends up inspiring a bunch of people to go fight. And I just love that scene because here's this, you know, little, he refers to himself as half a man and he's inspiring these people to go fight. And he ends up, he ends up his little speech with, these are brave men knocking on our door. Let's go kill them. And yeah. Um, now, what I was going to say is what's your opinion of this guy? Is he a good man or a bad man or is he an opportunist or is he an opportunist only because he has to be or is it in his nature? I think at heart he's a good man and he's an opportunist because he realized that's how he has to survive in this world. Right. He gets to the point, I think it's fair to say he's a character who's been looking for a place in in the world. We're introduced to the character first by people speaking of him because when the Lannisters in the very first episode are coming to Winterfell, the children want to see the imp. So where's the imp? Where's the imp? And as they're making preparations for his bedchambers, the servants are saying... Make sure there's plenty of candles. I heard he likes to read all night. And it's like, well, I heard he likes to drink all night. And it's and that pretty much is Tyrion yeah. there, is that he likes to read and drink and fuck. And that's the character right. um, at the start of the series. And he is a conniver and a con man. He jokes that his brother got the strength and he got the good looks. But again, Jamie's supposed to be the best warrior in the realm. And Tyrion makes a crack about how his sword never misses. <laughs> right. And and the, and the response, I think he's talking to the hound. And the hound says, it doesn't count if you pay for it. Right. So after the, like, the boy gets pushed out of the window, he doesn't know that it's his brother who did it. He doesn't understand what's going on, but the boy is crippled, and that touches his heart. And he says he's got a soft spot for cripples, bastards, and broken things. <laughs> um, right. And so he and so he devises a saddle, a harness, so that the boy can still ride his horse, even though he will never walk again. Well, and it's you know, based that, on the saddle he uses himself, because he has to have a special saddle because he's so short. Right. He eventually does end up becoming Hand of the King when Joffrey takes over. At the end of the second season, the woman he's currently in love with urges him to leave the city because he's you know sort of been displaced and he says you yeah, have to get out of here there's nothing but bad people here and Tyrion says but these bad people are what i'm good at right right and basically meaning he's good at playing them at manipulating them at outsmarting them at outmaneuvering them and he's playing a very very dangerous game but he's really good at this dangerous game he's found a place where he belongs he speaks to varus again the master of intelligence and master of whispers and they have a do strike up a friendship even though there's a little bit of gamesmanship going on and he says you know it's you know you do play the game well and he says well i'd, I'd like to keep on playing it you know right. so he finally finds a place in the world a place where he can get respect he actually wins respect from his father because of his abilities and his intelligence and, and so i think that's where a lot of it comes from phil i think that's what the character is the character is a person searching for his place in the world i think it's an interesting thing with all the lannisters is that there is on the one hand you do get this sort of sense of family because they all have this shared history and every line they speak to each other you go always feel there's something there's some old event behind 
bonded and there's some grudge, but they're also still family. So on some level, they're bonded and united. And it's that sort of thing where I can try to kill my brother, but don't you try to kill my brother. What would you think if he had not been born with, I guess, I don't want to call it a disability, but I, I guess different. If he had been born normal stature, I guess that's the best way to put it. How would you think this character would be? Would he be more like? He would uh, be more like Jamie. Uh, I think really, his, really I think his size has forced him to have a bit of humility that he might not have otherwise. He also has a kind of a sense of honor and kindness where the rest of his family would not. For instance, he's not afraid to tell King Joffrey to shut the fuck up and knock it off. He gets to slap, he, him, slap him twice, and that's uh, go look up YouTube Joffrey smack or slap, and you'll get about a twelve minute loop of him just smacking Joffrey. <laughs> and if you think it's really boring, watch the show, and then it'll be the greatest like twelve minutes of your life. Right. All their heads. Oh, you blind bloody fools! You can't insult me. We've had vicious kings, and we've had idiot kings, but I don't know if we've ever been cursed with a vicious idiot. Well, you can't. I can. I am. They attacked me. They threw a cow pie at you, so you decide to kill them all. They're starving, you fool, all because of a war you started. You're talking to a king. Ah, and now I've struck a king. Did my hand fall from my wrist? And he's very kind to a female character who has been vilified at one point of the story and everybody's treating her like shit except for Tyrion. There's the scene where there's the riot in the mm-hmm. streets where they throw mm-hmm. the cow pie at the at king. Right. And his first instinct is he calls out for Sansa. Uh-huh. He doesn't call for his brother or his sister. He doesn't call out for his guard to protect him. He calls out for Stark's daughter because he knows that she's basically an innocent who's caught up in all this. And he's more concerned with her welfare than anybody else who's there. Right. And I thought that was interesting. One of the things I mentioned, I don't know if he catches that Jamie Lannister is dyslexic. What? Where'd you get that? The point in the story where Arya Stark is the, the cup for Tywin Lannister for Charles right. Dance. Okay. Uh-huh. And one of his knights fucks up, sends the orders to the wrong lord, an ally of the Starks. Okay. Because he can't read that well. <laughs> And he realizes Arya can read, and he's asking her about that. And because she's lied about her background, she's trying to hide who she really right, is. Right. As they're talking about, so, you know, the Meister said, you know, my son Jamie, he tried to teach him how to read when he was younger. And the Grand Meister has basically said that he reverses the letters in his head, and that it just happens. You have to live with it. Oh, and I totally missed that. He so did I the first two times I watched the show, and then he says I sat him down four hours a day and I forced him to learn. Uh-huh. So that sort of again goes back to Jamie saying that he doesn't know what he would have done if he'd been born in a different family because he wouldn't have had any skill. His skill is killing people. Right. Tyrion doesn't have that. So he's honed his mind more so because of his condition, but you still get the sense he would have been a smart son of a bitch. His father would have made him learn. He just might have been more capable with a sword, and there's a good chance he would have been, you know, a real mover and shaker, even if he wouldn't be quite as clever as he is now, and certainly would have been probably less of a drunk and less of a whore. Right. Really, really sympathetic character, but again, a complex character. He's got complex relationships with his family. And what's interesting, you mentioned he was framed, or not framed, but well, he was framed. He was probably by yeah. Lannister. He was he was framed, but he's wrongly set up or wrongly arrested by Catelyn Stark, who should be hypothetically one of the heroes of the story. And the the Stark family are supposed to be the good guys, and we're realizing they're trying to basically railroad an innocent man. But he's smart enough to wiggle his way out of it, right? But this is where I'm getting at: is that this the show very rarely are things completely black and white. You understand why Lady Stark is doing what she's doing, and yeah. when he gets arrested, that's an also fantastic scene. Yeah, yeah, right where she rallies all the bannermen in the bar. She's just stands up and she points out you 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 made this boil of loyalty and you did this and you did it and you remember our families did this together okay good this son of a bitch tried to kill my son and it's like boom yeah, the swords come out yep. in an instant it was just a fantastic scene and even though this is a very male dominated 
world. She clearly has the authority and command at that moment because of the respect. Oh, I like Lady Stark. She's cool. Yes. For me, he's probably the best character in the, on the television show. Tyrion? Yeah, I think so. So how about you, Phil? What would you like to focus well, there's, on? There's a, there's a lot of them. Obviously, <laughs> some of the smaller characters uh, I would love to talk about, like Osha and, and such. But I want to talk about the guy that invades Winterland or Winter, whatever it's called. It's oh, 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 Theon. For, Theon Greyjoy? Theon. Okay. Theon, yeah, yeah, I'm Theon. sorry. Okay. Speaking of dicks. Yeah, I, I always screw up all the characters. There's just so many names. It wasn't me. Woo! <laughs> Uh, all right, so good, Mike. You have it written out. Now, who wants to give the backstory of this character? Right. At some point before the series, I think it was, they said nine years earlier, but that doesn't really matter. One of the kingdoms, or whatever you want to call them, is the Iron Isles, and they're basically in a group of dicks. Their, their family motto... <laughs> It's, like, it's word dicks. There are. There are so many dicks in this show. Not literal ones. Lots of literal tits, but a lot of figurative dicks. The Iron Isles are run by the Greyjoys, and their house is the Kraken, which tells you something. And their family motto is, we do not sow, basically meaning S-O-W. They don't harvest. They basically conquer. And they have this thing where, like, when you get something, the father asks them, did you pay the iron price or the gold? Meaning, did you steal it? Did you take it from somebody? Or did you pay for it like a woman? You know, sort of the idea. So they're really hard characters, are hard hardcore, fucked-up family, and they rebel against the king. Ned Stark puts down the rebellion, kills all the, the sons except for Theon, and basically takes Theon, who's like probably seven or eight years old at the time, as his ward, basically holding him hostage to keep the Elder Greyjoy in line. Right. And so he's raised, and he's best friends with Rob Stark, who's the heir to the Stark throne, and is the oldest of the Stark children. He's good friends with Rob Snow, who's the bastard son. So he's really part of the family, like an unofficial part of the family, and seems very comfortable in the Family. Right, that's basically where we are at the start of the series. Not too fast. Come on, Doc. When are you going to tell him? Yeah. Not now. Blood for blood. Come on. You need to make the Lannisters pay for Jory and the others. You're talking about war. You're talking about justice. Yeah. Only the Lord of Winterfell can call in the Bannermen and raise an army. The Lannister put his spear through your father's leg. The Kingslayer rides for Castle Rock, where no one can touch you. You want me to march on Castle Rock? You're not a boy anymore. They attach your father. They've already started the war. It's your duty to represent your house when your father can't. And it's not your duty. Because it's not your house. It's interesting, his character and his development, because, I mean, first off, they show him as a very oddly decent at times, but then behind closed doors, you know, he's a weirdo in a sense, too, because, you know, he's with all these different women, and it's almost like he needs to prove to somebody that he is a man, or that he's important, or whatever, most likely well, because his father basically dumped him, right? Well, here's the thing, is that he has no place. He's not with his real family, his blood family, the Greyjoys, because he was taken as a ward by the Starks, and the Starks, considering that he's essentially a hostage, have been treating him very well it's not like they you know make him into a slave and beat him or anything but at the same time even though he's good friends with rob he's not part of the family and they remind him of that on a regular basis basically say like look shut up you're not one of us you don't get any input and because of that he he just feels out of place i feel and, and that's why enough, he acts so, like so, such a dick sometimes sometimes things smack you in the face like you just did here but it's obviously a 
recurring theme in the series because you have that with Tyrion, you have that with Theon, you have that with you know, very obviously with Jon Snow, with Daenerys, with oh, with Arya is a big thing, you know, because Arya is a girl who doesn't want to be a lady, right? And she's trying to resist her biological destiny. So yeah, this idea of people sort of searching out a different life for themselves or feeling out of place in their position in which they're born. Yeah, and if Theon does say at some point, you know, that everybody in this shithole has been reminding me of my place, you know, every chance they've gotten for his whole life. Right. Right, exactly. So he doesn't feel like he fits. He has to prove things, and even if it's to himself, it at least quells some of those issues that he has. But, of course, it doesn't matter because no one sees that he's this person or anybody of significance. Basically, he got the bum lot. Now, obviously, the brothers or Ned's children, they treated him very well, but always remind him of who he really was. What did you guys think of Ned's relationship with him? Ned takes off so early in the series. By the end of the first episode, he departs. They have that little hunting group together. He's the one who says they should be killing the wolves at the beginning instead of handing out the wolf pups as treats. But of course, again, he doesn't get one, even though he's basically been raised with the Stark children. Right. The, the he, bastard son, Jon Snow, gets one, but Theon does not. Right. That's pretty bad when you think about it. And watching it, see, he's a character you can really miss the first season, right? I mean, yeah, because... Most of, his, most of his scenes in the first season is when he's just banging whores, right? Yeah, and that's like a running joke is, you know, oh, it's another scene for Theon take his clothes off. Right, and he's got the thing with the, the whore, Roz, who becomes a minor player later in the series. I don't want to get too far off of Theon, but just that's one of the great things about this show is just like, I have a feeling it's going to happen again in season three. In season two, all of a sudden we get all these new characters that weren't around in season one. You're like, wait, who's this? Who, what, 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 what are they doing? They want to be king now too? What the, what's going on? So, uh, but again, this is where one of those characters, and we'll get back to Theon, but one of those characters was Stannis Baratheon, who they talk about frequently in the first season, but you never see. Right. And Theon is one of these characters who's there in the background often, but you don't really notice because he doesn't have much to do. And it's hard to pick up his thread because there's so much else going on. But when you rewatch it, and especially with the second season, you go, oh, okay, it starts to make sense. And you listen to his, his comments that he makes afterwards, and it's like, oh, yeah, he always was a little bit of a dick, wasn't he? Right. Now, um, you brought the quote-unquote whore or prostitute or whatever that he hangs out with. That actually, that character... Roz. Yeah, she is, I believe, the only character in the television series that has a major role that was not in any of the books, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so she was- basically takes the place of a bunch of characters in the books because they realized they wanted like a character the audience could sympathize with. So while there are a lot of whores in Westeros, all the people of power seem to want to frequent Roz for whatever reason. Right, exactly. She's uh, just that good. Yeah, there you go. And she's not bad looking either. Wait, back to... Uh, yeah, Beyond yeah. Rageway. I'll never get these names. Well, but, even the uh, Rageway tells you something, you know, that there's sort of a bittersweetness to the character, right? There's... Sure. You know, it's, What's your guy's opinion of his fate at the end of season two? And I guess not only does he show his evil side comes out, but then he himself gets backstabbed by his own people, too. Well, he tries to prove that he belongs. He tries to make his place instead of finding his place. Okay, we have to even go back, I think, is that he's sent to recruit his father into the rebellion against King Joffrey and by Rob Stark. And basically when he gets to his father, and even though his mother, Caitlin Stark, says, don't do that, he's a Greyjoy, Rob ignores his mom and pays the price and he sends Theon and when Theon meets his father and his sister, they basically berate him for having given up on his family and they mock him sort of and humiliate him until he feels like he's being shunned by his family and he has a choice to make. He's either stick with the Starks or stick with the Greyjoys. Oh, and there's actually a scene that's kind of funny. When he 
first gets back to the Iron Islands, he meets this woman and is just hitting on her ferociously. And it turns out, yeah, that's his sister. He didn't recognize her. And she knew it, too. Yeah, she knew it. Yeah. Oh, and she has some sort of line, because he's, like, boasting to her, like, you'll tell your grandchildren about this. And, and then she later on says, oh, this will be a day I'll tell my grandchildren about. <laughs> right. You know, it's because he's been groping her for the whole ride there. And, right, and that's when the father starts berating. He's like, he's, and his father is completely disgusted with him. He's talking about, like, all the fancy clothes he's wearing and how he's gotten soft and weak. And Theon says, well, you don't have any sons. Who's going to fight for you? And he says, well, your sister's been doing a good job. And he says, but you're a woman. And she says, but I'm not the one in skirts. You know, again, pointing <laughs> out to his outfit. And his father is a hard ass. And they're really, really just very kind of cruel to him. He's not happy to see him. Again, and he feels torn because it wasn't his choice. He didn't choose to go live with the Starks. The Starks still were kind to him. And he's got a choice between betraying the people who raised him, but stole him from his family or side with his family, even though they're assholes and cruel to him. Right. And again, in this world, this is a world of hierarchy and you were born into a role and everyone has a place, whether you like it or not. And he is trying to get his place to be the heir to the Iron Isles. That's what his thing is. So he tries desperately to fit in by being the biggest asshole he can be because these are all hard asses and you know when he's given his first command nobody listens to him right and you know, so he's like you stop stop I said stop you know and his first mate's like they're not gonna listen to you know it's like and you know, when his sister comes by at the same time she kind of mocks him and says well don't you need to get you know to your ship before they sail off without you and she says no they'll wait there for a year if i tell them to <laughs> you know she commands loyalty he has none and he desperately wants that and i gotta be honest there's part of me that feels empathy for that because when i first started teaching i was in a classroom co-teaching with a guy who was a monumental bastard and and he was a hard and i'm just kind of learning the ropes and i tried sort of doing what he did and it didn't work for me because I just don't have that personality. I couldn't sell it. I couldn't make it work. And I was also young enough that if I wasn't wearing a shirt and tie, I would have looked like a student to find your own place and find your own way of doing things. It's really bad when you try to be a dick and you're not a big dick. You know, and that's, that's basically what Theon's trying to be. There's a line later on in the show where Master Llewellyn says uh, something like, you're not the man that you're pretending to be. Right. And be clear, if I had to choose one to fight between Theon and his sister, oh yes, I, okay. I, I would choose Theon every time. Yeah, well, I wouldn't mind, you know, rolling around with the sister a little bit. That's not fighting, Mike. <laughs> but it could always well, end up there. Basically, no one really takes him seriously. And even when he does show some leadership, even though at this point, you know, he had already made so many enemies but he does show leadership in a great speech and then you know there's a joke where they finally club him his own people and they go why did you do it so soon he goes well the speech was so good i just wanted to hear it yeah, you know, yeah, and- yeah, yeah. it would be a shame to interrupt him you hear that that's the mating call of the northmen they want to fuck us well i haven't had a good fucking week i'm ready for one they say every ironborn man is worth a dozen from the mainland. Do you think they're right? Aye. We die today, brothers. We die bleeding from a hundred wounds with arrows in our necks and spears in our guts. But our war cries will echo through eternity. They will sing about the Battle of Winterfell until the Iron Islands have slipped beneath the waves. Every man, woman and child will know who we were and how long we stood. Agar and Gelmar, Wex and Urzain, Stig and Black Lauren, 
Ironborn warriors will cry out our names as they leap onto the shores of Seagard and Faircastle. Aye. Mothers will name their sons for us. Aye. Girls will think of us with their lovers inside them. Aye. And whoever kills that fucking hornblower will stand in bronze above the shores of Pike. Watch his dead blade never die. Thought he'd never shut up. It was a good speech. Didn't want to interrupt. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but even the one great thing he does, which is, you know, invade and take over Winterfell, is just a strategically stupid move. He's trying to show his loyalty, and he's trying to show he has a pair of balls, but it's not something he can ever hold. It strategically makes no sense. They're hundreds of miles from the ocean, and this is, a you know, an army that's set on boats. Well, and to be fair, he gets kind of talked into it. And he does um, get talked into it, but it's because he's too weak to stand up to his men. He doesn't have respect of his men, and he thinks by getting talked into it that, well, I can win their respect. But again, he's still sort of leading from behind. It's just not who he is and the way he does it is also just lame because he basically he walks into bran stark's room who's let's just remember bran is the one who got pushed out of the tower he's paralyzed from the waist down he's a cripple so he walks into the cripple's bedroom where he's lying in bed and says i'm taking your castle it's just like what the seriously dude you're gonna do that and what it was too is that it was unexpected because, you know, they considered him, quote-unquote, a family member. And so even though he was able to take it with ease, it was because of trickery, not because of bravery or anything like that. Right, it's not like he stormed the castle. He walked in because he's lived there for the past 20 years or however long, and I was like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm invading. <laughs> <laughs> right, and there's, yeah, and even then, there's um, and one of the advisors, a friend of Catelyn Stark's, and is one of the, the big advisors and man of importance, who they capture, and he executes because he was, won't give uh, Theon any respect, and it's the fact that he executes this person who he's known his whole life, and he does it just to impress these people who don't give a shit about him. Right. And this is not, you know, an unusual thing, where kids who are trying to find their way in life, and he is supposed to be like 17 or 18 years old, you know, they're just trying to find their place in life, will try to impress the wrong people, and do stupid Stupid shit. Yeah, and, and he's essentially throwing a temper tantrum, but he's a 20-year-old with a sword. Right, and even that fails, because when his sister finally shows up, she says, so who gave you the bigger problem, the cripple or the six-year-old? Right. <laughs> That's right. a great line. <laughs> And and yeah, he's yeah. and he's he's really just he's just fucking it up you know every which way again finally he's told well you know you could always sneak off and go join the Night's Watch but he's too proud and stupid to do that yeah exactly because he could have been saved himself now why did his sister and father hate him so much I didn't understand that I think his father's an asshole well there's that I don't think it goes any further yeah, well, than that that yeah, his father right. had that they have certain values and their values are basically we take what we want we've got giant iron balls and we're going to take from the those who are who are less than us and they look down on people who dress in finery and who pay the gold price instead of paying the iron price I think it's just a really screwed up culture that they have on the Iron Islands and they buy into it hook, line, and sinker and they see their son come by as weak uh, uh, I see what you did there fishing culture yes, hook, because. line, and sinker <laughs> right but that's what they value and and he doesn't fit in that mold and it's quite possible he never would have even if he grew up there he might have been an outcast he may not have the strength of character it's also probably he's a reminder of failure that's what I was about to say he was taken as a punishment for having rebelled against the throne. You know, when he sees Theon come walking in dressed like a Stark, he's just like, well, this isn't my son, you know. Right, he probably expected his son to rebel against his imprisonment. Right. You know, not go all Patty Hearst on them. 
Right. I think that's it. And by the way, I think the actor does a great job. I mean, first of all, he's got oh, he's really, really, really expressive eyes, you know, so that helps. And they're always a little bit buggy, like he's always a little bit confused as to what's going on around him. He's just like a half step behind everything. Right. And always trying to catch up. And you really do feel some empathy for him, even though he's doing these horrible things. And we're supposed to not feel bad. He pretends to kill the Stark children, but the way he pretends to kill the Stark children is by killing two other children. <laughs> right. So even then, you can't <laughs> say, oh, well, he didn't really do it. He's not that bad. No, he killed two other children. Which, by the way, we had seen earlier being sent off to help this farmer run his farm because all of his boys are off fighting Rob Stark's war. The best thing you can say is that Theon doesn't do evil things because he's evil. Theon does evil things because he's stupid. Right, and there's a point for example, because the orphan boys were sent to help this farmer, and so Theon kills the orphan boys because he can't find where the real Stark children are, so he's been outsmarted by a six-year-old and a cripple. Um, <laughs> and Which I want to point out, not you know, to be fair, to he's like a nine-year-old, you know, so it's not like he's being outsmarted by Professor Xavier or something. Um, right. If you prefer, the crap term would be a disabled person. Right. So he he gives his first mate. He says he gives goes to hand him a bag of gold. They said here. He said what's they say? Well, it's for the farmer for his trouble. It's like we silence the farmer. He said it's like, it's like when you silence someone, you silence them. Yes. Right, they even killed more people. Yeah, so even then he's like, oh, you know, he's not, he's not getting it. He's not understanding. His heart is still good. He's trying. You know, he doesn't. Weird, he doesn't no know way. how to pay the iron price. Right, he doesn't know how to pay the iron prices. His heart is not in his sword. His heart is in his penis, and he's trying to charm his way through, and he can't do it. He, he doesn't. He doesn't conflicted. have the charm. He doesn't have the charm. He's also he's conflicted. He's, he doesn't know he's supposed to be following his father's footstep or Ned Stark's footstep, the father that hates him or his captor, who who, who we believe are care for him right so but again this is sort of again that the the toll that world takes and then you know do you choose your role or do you get placed in it and again the more we talk about it the more obvious the theme of the series is is that's a big big one for almost every major character yep that's the truth Uh, any further things you want to say about this character or if not mike it's your turn to bring up somebody even though i think eric already stole your thunder because i assume he you would have chose the same character he chose no i wouldn't i gotta go with the platinum blonde and i'll go with the targaryens and that storyline and specifically daenerys i don't remember the name of the actress i bet you remember her boobs I do remember her tits. And this is Daenerys Targaryen, the, the blonde. She's the tri- oh, 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 the dragon girl. Yeah, the right. mother and of dragons. Actress, this is her first basic job out of acting school. She's she hadn't good. done anything before this. It's like, well, we want to give you the job. Are you willing to show us your tits all the time? And ass and, and other things. <laughs> and you have to give her a lot of credit because she does, in the first season, go from this very, very mild and meek young girl, bullied by her older brother and probably more than that, right? into becoming a very, very strong and smart character and there's still stuff you know, as I was rewatching it that I wasn't catching. Now, you know, but don't forget times. though, she has a great, great number two. Body, yes. Well, that's great. true too. She has a hell of a body, but she's got a great number two. Her guard there, that guy. Sir Dora Mormont, yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, who is that guy, first of all? Because I, I, I know who he is, kind of, sort of, but I'm always confused about what he's... You mean the actor, the actor, no, or his his no, character's no, relationship to everything else? His character's relationship to everything else is he an opportunist, or does he really want to help these people? But now, as I see by the end of the season two, it seems like they actually may be eventually going to marry or fall in love or something. Well, now this is what Mike was referring to earlier when he was saying he caught a relationship that was dropped when the sword was presented to Jon Snow. Sir Jorah Mormont is actually the son of the guy who's in charge of the Night's Watch. His father. 
Okay. 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 According to, to the story, the more monster symbol is the bear. And according to the story, and I don't know if this is the real story, but it's the story he tells. He was exiled because he caught thieves on his land who were like, who were hunting his stag. And he basically tried to sell them into slavery. And so Lord Stark, Ned Stark, basically banished him. Because okay. basically what you're supposed to do is if you catch somebody, you're supposed to send them up north so they can be on the wall with the Night's Watch. And instead he tried to profit off them and sell them off as slaves. Right. And his father is the head of the Night's Watch and and all his father ever says is that his son is disgraced and exiled and sent to a faraway land and he does drop the name but again there's so many names it's so easy to lose track this time I rewatched it with the subtitles on and that helps a little bit and so yeah, he he's basically sent if you pay close attention he was sent by Viserys the eunuch okay hang on we're getting confused here Viserys is actually the name of the brother sorry Varys uh, thank you there you Varys go Varys is the name the of the eunuch sorry. he yeah. was basically sent by Varys the eunuch to spy on the Targaryens Okay. But I believe and, he's actually, at this point, he's loyal to Daenerys Targaryen, if not her brother. Right. There's a point in the series where they try to uh, assassinate Daenerys. And at that moment, he is presented with a pardon. And again, this is something you really have to pay attention to because I think Arya Stark overhears it in the basement of two people walking along. And there's just little things that you realize contact someone and says, like, Lord Varys will be pleased to hear this. And they talk about the person over in the Thrakids. You really kind of have to do your, your work and pay attention to put these pieces together. But Varys basically sent him over there to spy on them to report back so that he can get a pardon from the king and he gets the pardon when the assassination is set up. He's the one feeding information back but he realizes sort of at that moment that his real loyalty is to her. Right. And he does explain it later where he says that there is greatness in her but he also sees tenderness and caring that she is somebody who should rule. Right and basically you see this in the Daenerys character as the series progresses. It's just clear. I mean she starts out as this meek sister of the guy who's power hungry and along the way just develops into a leader naturally. You can tell that she's just like, it's a little awkward at first, but when she starts getting the hang of it, this is like really what she was meant to do and just keeps on going with that. It's a series progresses to the point where she's in a position of some power. Yeah. And there's little subtle things. It's clear. I think that the brother is certainly he abuses the sister, right? He can be physically violent and he intimidates her and there probably might be some, some incest going on there. Well, um, I believe the first time we see them, he uh, removes her top. Like that right. the very first scene, we see this brother and sister together. He takes her top off and basically starts playing with her boobs. And it's just like, wait, whoa, what's... Huh? Right, but it's also not clear because he is marrying her off. So we don't know if she's intact. We do find out later that the Targaryens do like incest and been you know, keeping it in the family for some time. Right. You know, but where it's made blatantly clear and stated outright with Jamie Lannister and Cersei. It's, it's only you know, into that, yeah. Into that. And so it's a question of, is it something that's possible or is something that might have happened if something progressed differently or is it something that was actually done? And she's presented to Cal Drogo, who is basically Genghis Khan. He's the lord of the horse riders of the, the, the Dothraki. And they basically just, they don't grow things, they don't farm. They're sort of like the, 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 the dry is. land version of the Greyjoys. But they value a lot of strength and straightforwardness. There's not a lot of duplicity in them. You know, but they are conquerors and they will take slaves and they you know when even during the marriage the wedding they say if there's a dothraki wedding where there's less than three deaths is considered a boring affair and stated pretty clearly right away where viserys's head is at in regards to his sister which is that he just tells her flat out i would let call drogo and all of his men and all of their horses rape you if it would get me 
what I want. Mm-hmm. And the look on the sister's face is sort of the point where she realizes he's a bastard and he doesn't care about her. Right. She's you know not necessarily the most worldly person. She's very, very naive at the beginning. Right. How old is she supposed to be? Like 15? Maybe. Something like that. Old, you know, yeah. legal age in Dothrak, whatever that is. <laughs> so she's been promised to him. You know, there's a big wedding. You know, one of the gifts, because again, their symbol is the dragon. They're given these fossilized dragon eggs that are, you know, hundreds of years old. It's made clear that, that they are not fertile eggs anymore, but they are a, such a rarity that they're extremely expensive. And these things are constantly in the background and they will figure in, you know, certainly later. And you just see her go from this meek little girl. She first conquers her call because like, basically the call takes her, you know, on their wedding night and, you know, fucks her from behind. She's clearly not into it. She's terrified because she's played by the guy who did Conan, the new Conan film. Jason Momoa. By the way, I think very underrated performance in, in the series. He's, he does a great job without ever oh. having to say much in English. Well, Absolutely yeah, he, fantastic. he's fantastic and he has to speak in a fake language. I don't know how he pulled that one off. And so, like, she recruits, Jorah has given her a handmaiden who is from her country to help ease her in and help guide her and tutor her. And she basically teaches her how to seduce Khal Drogo. Right. And she's like, but he, you know, it's like, you'll make him look at you, but he doesn't like it that way. That's not the way they do that. And she's like, men and want what they've never had. This is just something I want to point out here is that this one scene is the one thing that I noticed where there was a significant difference between the book and the television series, which is that on their wedding night in the book, he doesn't just like treat her like an animal and take her for her. There's, there's actually some tenderness going on there on their wedding night in the book, whereas there's not in the television series. No, but it could also be, if I can, you know, it could always be because you're seeing it mostly from her point of view she just might be so scared shitless by this man and his mammoth penis that there was no tenderness that was going to work for her. well i could have misinterpreted it, but it seemed like in the book she was kind of into it so i haven't gotten that far in the book so yeah. okay but right so he basically wins her over and really does seduce him and win her over you do see and this is why i say his performance when the action scenes call for it when he's called to be the big intimidating character he he does it great and that's hard to do but you can also see the actors express the love that he has and the admiration and the absolute devotion he has to her. Right. And he has to do it almost all just with the look in his face because he's not allowed to speak in English. And so she wins him over. And at this point, there are little subtle hints given along the way that she's special. Right. That, again, you might miss. Like she gets into a bath of steaming hot water or she leaves one of the dragon eggs sitting on a fire, picks it up and then hands it off to her handmaiden. And her handmaiden like, you know, has to sort of juggle it because it's hot. Right. Um, she does mention a line somewhere in there that, you know, the, the dragons aren't burned, you know, or something like that. And supposedly the Targaryens have dragon blood in them, according to legend. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do see, again, although there's at some point, oh, that's right, when, uh, her brother is with the, with the handmaiden, the handmaiden drips the wax on him, the hot wax, mm-hmm. that he does sort of go, ah, you know, so he's getting burned, she's not. Right. So that's a very, very subtle foreshadowing. Again, it's really easy to miss the first time through. Right. So her, the brother is realizing, like, she's loved by the Dothraki people, by her husband, her husband who is not giving the army to go back and invade and, and retake the Iron Throne the way he was supposed to. And they do point out that they have a thing. They don't like the ocean because you can't drink the salt water. The salt water is poisonous. And they ride on horses, not on boats. The horses don't want to go on boats. So it's questionable whether or not they would ever get the damn army overseas in the first place. And he throws a tantrum and insists, I want my army now. I want my golden crown. You promised me a crown. And, <laughs> and, and, and boy, bad words 
words and he says, okay, you know, I will give you what I promised you. He will give you a, a crown that will make, you know, people tremble. And he's held down, forced to his knees. The cow takes off his belt, which has these gold medallions on it, drops it into the pot, melts the gold down, and pours the gold over his head. And that's one of my favorite moments out of anything I've ever watched. Absolutely. Oh, God, that's so awesome. Oh, yeah. And even, and what I love is when he dies and his body falls over, you hear the metal, the thunk of the gold hitting the floor. <laughs> right. To just get an idea of just how heavy this is. But again, this is fire. He's burned. Then later, there's the assassination attempt on Daenerys because she gets pregnant, as happens. And she sure does get pregnant, if you know oh, yeah. I mean. It's almost like rape for crying out loud. Jeez. Yeah, but she's, uh, she. oh, there's a scene where she eats the horse heart, which I know it's not a real horse heart. It's probably like a gummy horse heart or something. <laughs> but it is still hard to watch because it's a big heart and it's a little girl. And I just kind of, you know, ugh, you know. And that's, that, that scene is really where she wins over the hearts of the Dothraki. Right. Because this little blonde girl chows down on a horse heart and keeps it down. Right. And she says her son will be the rider who mounts the world. Basically, he's going to rape the world will be her child. And the word gets back through Mormont, through Jorah, to Westeros that they're planning on coming, coming back and taking back the Iron Throne. So they send an assassin over. The assassination fails. Jorah saves her and he gets praised by Cal Drogo. And then Cal Drogo goes off on an awesome rant about how he's basically going to, he's now he's going to invade them, right? That this is it, that they they tried to kill his beloved and he's basically going to destroy, I guess it would be the Eastern lands mm-hmm. going by the map. And so this kicks off, you know, the next step in that storyline. And as they're riding through and they're riding to the ocean, to get on the boats with their horses. Because I think they mentioned like his army is something like 100,000 strong. It's a massive army. Yes. And there's a dispute. Daenerys is upset because, again, we do get that she has kind of a kind heart, even if she did let her brother get set on fire. He deserved it. The Dothraki are taking slaves and raping women in some villages. These sheep people, these herders. And they're talking about horses don't marry sheep. They just buck them. And she claims all the women in this village sort of as her servants. And that pisses off some people because they're like, hey, I got to get my rocks off here. And your wife is taking my women as her servants. And so someone challenges Cal Drogo and just an awesome fight scene. It's a short one, but it's a great one because Cal Drogo, he walks right into the blade and lets the blade dig into his shoulder mm-hmm. as he's trying to intimidate him. He drops his own knives and basically manages, grabs the guy's throat, pulls out his throat and, you know, the tongue comes out with it. And that's yeah, how it, awesome Cal Drogo is. And that's how awesome Cal Drogo, because we haven't seen him fight up to this point. They make a comment to the very first episode about how long his hair is because they said when a Dothraki loses a battle, they cut off, they, they get his, his braid is cut off and he's never had his hair cut. He's never had his braid cut away. This actor is the guy that played the reboot of Conan, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. Which I didn't see and I'm only curious because I'm curious to see him in it. And what happens is one of the women that Daenerys has saved is a witch or is a, a priestess or medicine woman, whatever you want to call her. And she... She's a witch! Yes. And she says she can help because Khal Drogo has a, has a scratch. He's this little wound where he put his shoulder into the blade. And Khal Drogo's being all, you know, Mr. Manly testosterone guys like, ah, it's about a scratch. It's just a flesh wound. I can shrug it off. And Daenerys is being all girly and like, oh no, it looks painful. Please get it treated for me. And I don't want to see my Kyle in pain. And so he lets the medicine woman treat it. The wound gets infected and he's about to die. And she, she goes back to the medicine woman and says, I'll do whatever you want. And she says, well, only death can pay for life, I think was the line. Right. And so they bring the Kyle's horse into the tent and this really awesome scene, just great sound effects. You just hear this like demonic noises coming from 
the tent. They kill the horse. Blood's everywhere. Oh, and then Daenerys goes into labor right. and finds out her child is stillborn. And not only stillborn, but hideously deformed. Well, now, no, I want to pause here. Yes. Do you remember exactly what they said about it? How well, it was, he was formed? He had bat's wings and covered in dragon scales and lizard-like scales. Yeah, that's kind of interesting, don't you think? Well, yes, I agree. Yeah, that offers questions. And of course, and at which point, Khal Drogo gets better, but he's brain dead. Right. He's a vegetable. He's breathing, and, but he's just staring off into space. Right. And she says, you know, only death could pay for life. So she basically implications that she killed her child, that she took the baby in order to save Khal Drogo's life. And she says, look, I was raped three times before you rescued me. You thought I was going to be grateful? And at this point, many of the riders leave. They've lost faith in her. And she builds a funeral pyre, ties the witch to the funeral pyre. Which at this point, I'm completely behind. Yes. And yeah, she burn, says, burn uh, that witch. Burner. Daenerys starts giving the speech to rally the few troops she has left. And Jorah is very concerned because he sees where this is going, which is he's looking at her, you know, throwing herself on the fire, like in their, you know, in a ritualistic sacrifice of giving up her life. She's saying like, and we will hear our enemies scream. And the witch says, I will never scream. She's like, yes, you will. You and will scream. Right. Oh, and she does. <laughs> and again, it took me three times of watching this to figure this out. So she's builds the funeral pyre for Kyle, puts the dragon eggs on it. You know, right. again, it's like, well, these were our gift at our wedding. We're thinking it's sort of a symbolic gift and she throws herself on the funeral pyre but the next morning everything is ashes she's sitting there once again naked because it is all game of her clothes burned well also because it's game of thrones and that's what they do right and everyone stares around as they approach her there are three dragons that come around her and what i finally figured out is that i had thought that this was a happy accident but she has in, in rewashing it's clear that this was what she planned yeah yeah that the reason she put the witch on the funeral pyre was because only death can pay for life and she uses her her death to bring the dragons back. Well, and I think the fire had something to do with it, too. Well, right. She's saying you take the fire, you take the death, you take, obviously, Cal Drogo's death and her clothes. Maybe that was, maybe panties were part of it. (laughs) We tried fire and a witch. It didn't work. Did you try fire, witch, and panties? Oh, no, we didn't do that. Okay. So you see this character sort of come full term into a, a game changer now and a real player because she has dragons. Right. So it's a fantastic transformation in the character and the actress. There is a lot of nuance to it. It's just a great storyline. And it's one thing I really missed in the second season was really more the absence of Cal Drogo and what he brought to it and what the the horse rider, the Thraki brought to in terms of their uh, the alienness and their otherness of their culture. Well, I also thought just kind of the... Uh... I mean, there is a plot line with Daenerys in the second season. I didn't find it that intriguing. It was just kind of filler, and it bugged me. I hope they do a lot more with her in season three. Yeah, Eric, well, the in pre- prior podcast, Eric, you mentioned that you thought it was basically just a rehash or a minor continuation of season one and nothing more, right? Well, I'm not even a rehash, but she ends up in the same basic position, which is like at the end of season one, she's standing there with her dragons, and something's going to happen. At the end of season two, she's standing there with her dragons and something's going to happen. So it's just like, you know, let's have some progress here. Well, see, I've heard a lot of complaints that it was a rehash and rewatching it, I think, in the second season, which is all about her trying to basically get a ship to get herself over to Westeros. The first season, I think, was about her finding her self-confidence and asserting herself and finding out her special purpose. Right. Again, finding her place in the world. But it's still an awful lot of it is done because through Cal Drogo, because of the respect for Cal Drogo, she works through through him and takes some of his strength, but she still loses her entire army or the vast majority of her army. Right. I can already see uh, one of our listeners, Michelle Barkley, probably talk about some of this on the Facebook group, how her her storyline really evolves in books three, four, and five, I bet. Assuming season two follows book two at least a little bit based off of this TV show that is just, as you said, Art, maybe just filler for season two. It could be. I don't. I haven't got far enough through the book to be able to state that for a fact. Right. But what I would say is different in season two is that, again, she's 
learned strength through the Dothraki. The Dothraki were very straightforward. This time she learns how to navigate liars. She learns how to deal with politics to a degree. And she learns how to become a leader. And she actually overcomes something as opposed to before where she just, you know, let herself be thrown on a fire. Where Theon Greyjoy tries to assert himself by taking over Winterfell and fails miserably. You know, her, right. you know, her asserting herself is here. And her asserting herself was outwitting Zarazon Bathros, whatever his name was, you know, in the greatest city that ever was or ever will be. Right. You know, and because she tries, like when she first shows up the city, she throws a tantrum. <laughs> yeah, she does. And, and she's like, you better let me in or I'm going to come back and kick your ass. It's like, didn't you just say if we don't let you in, you're going to die? <laughs> right. That was a Fuck that you. Was well, a... <laughs> and yeah, so the only reason she gets in is, again, she's let in through the kindness of a stranger, but someone who's trying to manipulate her. Yeah, it was, it was not true kindness. It was false kindness. Right. And this is happening through her throughout, and she's even betrayed by someone she thought was loyal to her. And she says at the end of this to the person who betrayed her, she says, thank you for, for teaching me this lesson. This was a lesson she had to learn was how to deal with duplicitous people. When she goes back to Westeros, she's going to have to learn to deal with people like Varys and Tyrion and right, right. all these others. I don't think the story was as effectively told as it could have been, and this could have been a limit on the budget. You know, there's only so weird and alien they could have done with this, even though I have a feeling in the book they probably do it a lot better because these are supposed to be wizards and all sorts of, like one of the characters is a wizard, and you get that sense that there might have been more to it in the books and they just didn't have the money to go all the way with it. Right. Having finished the second season, there is a lot of foot dragging going around. Yeah. Like if you think of Jon Snow's storyline was right out beyond the wall. <laughs> right. And that's pretty much what he does. And that's you know, it. Right. I mean, stuff happens, but it's something that really could have all been done in a couple of short snippets. I think that's true of a lot of the characters, but so much of the focus is on the the battle for the throne, the War of the Five Kings. That's some of the other storyline. Like, think about Arya's story arc. Really, there isn't a whole lot there. She's riding through the forest, she gets captured, and then she escapes. Right. Some great scenes built around that, but really not a lot of action going on, not a lot of development and growth going on. I mean, all the really interesting stuff in season two was with the Lannisters. And Rob. I think with Rob is important, and they also introduced Stannis. True. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's an important part. All right. We could talk about some of the beasts that we only see a little bit in the seasons. We could talk about the Lannisters in more detail. We only talk about the one, but the other characters are kind of wooden. We could talk about some of the peripheral characters, like the Woman Knight or the Wildlings. Or, or oh, whatever. the Woman Knight. The Woman Knight is cool. What the hell's her name? Brienne, Brienne. the Beauty. Brienne yeah. the Beauty. Yeah, she, she's a cool character. Of House Terrell. It was House Terrell. She was House Terrell. That was it. She's a six she foot two blonde who beats other people's sword fighting. She kicks ass. Yes, yes. She sure yeah, uh, we mentioned like before that Jamie Lannister is supposed to be the greatest warrior in the kingdom. Right. And he makes a comment at one point and makes it to her that there's probably only two men in the kingdom who might have a chance to beat me. And one of them is, I can't remember, it begins with an L, but he's the Knight of Flowers. Uh-huh. Basically the lover of King Renly. Loras Tyrell. Loras Tyrell, that was it. Yeah. And there's actually at one point we see two of the Lannister knights having a debate as to who's the greatest warrior in the realm. And it's, well, there's Jamie, there's the Mountain, Sir Clegane, and what's his face, the Knight of Flowers. When we we first meet Brienne, she beats the crap out of the Knight of Flowers in a contest. Right. So if he is considered the best swordsman in the realm, or certainly one of them, and she beats him handedly, you have a feeling that Jamie could get his ass kicked badly. Well, and there's also an interesting scene later on because basically she's taking him as a prisoner, transporting him somewhere else, and he keeps on trying to goad her into unshackling him and fighting it out. Then there's a scene where he actually gets to watch her 
take out three dudes in a blink of an eye, and all of a sudden he's not so keen on fighting her anymore. So even Jamie Lannister is afraid of her. And unfortunately, that's about where that story ends going into the third season. Right. I've noticed a pattern that really the ninth episode of the first and second season could have been the season finale. Right. And then the last episode is much more a setup for what's going to follow. Uh-huh. Right? Like, it's the last episode of season one where Rob Stark becomes king in the north. Uh-huh. So, and just little things like that when Arya gets taken away to go right up to the wall. Here, you just got Brienne taking Jamie Lannister, you know, and taking him away. You know, so this is right after the Battle of Blackwater, Blackwater Bay, right? Is there's the big battle scene in, in the ninth episode. So, yes. sort of, yeah. Which is so awesome. The, yeah, so the tenth episode is going to continue this pattern, but it seems to be more a, here's what's coming up in next season. So that storyline, we don't ever get to see paid off, but I imagine we will be seeing it paid off soon. Right. I hope so. I would love to see uh, Brand take out Jamie Lannister in a fight. That would be sweet. Now, I will say, having accidentally been spoiled, there, I do know there are some major characters that will not survive for very much longer. At least well, probably of course. Well, I mean, this whole series, characters get chopped off. I guess that sounds like what you talk about all the time about the comic book Walking Dead. Major characters are just chopped out over and over and over in this series as in The Walking Dead. Yeah, right? but I don't think that if you look, I don't see in second season, I think Renly is the only one who dies, isn't he? Of the really major characters. The other Baratheon that you know, he's warring with Stannis over who gets to be the Baratheon that sits his ass on the throne. Right. Second I'm, season, I'm, there are not a lot of deaths. I guess you're right. That's a good point. Well, yeah. and I gotta say Ned Stark's, well, clearly we're in spoiler territory, but Ned Stark death scene was just so well done. I thought it was awesome because basically he gets, well, betrayed at the last second and he gets forced to confess something under the impression that he'll be uh, let go if he does. Then after he does, they're like off with his head. And so there's this moment right before they behead him where he's just looking up into the sky and all the sound in the scene drops out except for his breathing. And I thought that was just so incredibly well done. Right. And one of the horrific things is that you know his two daughters are watching him. Right. And I think that's part of the horror of the scene. And this is also the scene where if there's any doubt whether Joffrey was a brat or a bastard, he clearly crosses over into being a bastard because he's the one that made the deal and then publicly he says, but well, they have soft hearts of women. He needs to be punished. Execute him. Right. right. Contrast with the scene from the first episode where Ned Stark swung the sword because he passed the sentence, swings the sword, and of course Joffrey never swings the damn sword. Right. What's your guy's opinion on Lilisandra? The Fire Witch? Yes. One that's played by Carice Van Hooten. Who, by the way, was yes. she was in Black Death that we did an episode on. And by the way, we, we do see her tits, too. They're very we see, nice. We see, we see a hell of a lot more, too. But yes, they're very nice, sir. Yes. What was the deal with her birthing demon thing? I, mean, I didn't understand it. I was hoping you could explain it to me. I looked it up. It's something called a, a shadow assassin. Basically, it's birthed to kill somebody and then it dies. Oh, uh, okay. And so it's sort of like her spell or, or something or some power she has. And she says, because she serves the Lord of Light, and she says the light is the ally of shadow because shadows can't survive in darkness. Mm-hmm. And the stronger the light, the darker the shadow. Okay. So, so she, she basically summons that thing to kill Renly. Right, who is one of the pretenders yeah, okay. to the throne. All right, right. Now, let's talk about Blackwater, right? Blackwater. Cue up the Doobie Brothers right about now, is that? (laughs) That's actually a good point, actually. Don't fight for honor, don't fight for glory. Don't fight for riches because he won't get any. This is 
Because your city stands means to sack. That's your gate he's ramming. If he gets in, it will be your houses he burns. Your gold he steals. Your women he will rape. Those are brave men knocking at our door. Let's go kill them. First off, directed by Neil Marshall, director of The Descent and Dog Soldiers. And also, this episode was specifically the screenplay was written by George R. R. Martin himself. And, and the, the combination is fantastic. Oh, mm-hmm. so it's unbelievably fantastic. And it's an episode that breaks format because up till now, Game of Thrones has been cycling through, you know, at least four or five sets of characters every episode. Sometimes a character won't appear in one episode, but there's usually four or five plots that we're keeping touch with. Here, the entire story is the battle for. Or King's Landing between the Lannisters and Stannis Baratheon. Right. Stannis has raised his fleet of ships and they're going to try and come ashore at King's Landing and take the throne. Now, who is this guy specifically? I mean, he's Baratheon, right? Stannis is Robert's younger brother. Okay. And he is the one that is technically the rightful heir because that, Joffrey that, is not the legitimate heir. He's a bastard. Right, because he's not uh, a blood relation. He, he's not even a bastard. He's a product of incest. Right, yeah. sorry. So yeah, he's, he's incestual. He, he has no Baratheon blood in him at all, so theory, he's false member of throne, and as a result, this other guy Stannis Baratheon, and he was the master of ships in the King's Small Council under Robert's reign. And this is assuming that we don't count the dragon lady who still claims she should be the ruler, right? Right. Right, well, that's, and under the claim to the throne of the current, and again, you could go into, well, there's no elections, but, you know, Jimmy Carter should come and supervise and make sure everything's done correctly, but that's a whole other issue. If you go by the line of succession as it's set up and by who's in power now, then Stannis is technically, because he's the older surviving brother and the only true Baratheon of the bloodline. There's a bastard son of Robert's running around, but he's still a bastard and doesn't even know he's in line. Right. So Stannis should be sitting on the throne. The problem is Stannis is a great warrior, but nobody likes him. Right. You know, his younger brother, Renly, makes that comment. He's like, nobody gives a shit about him. Nobody will follow him. They'll all follow me because I'm gay and fabulous. (laughs) And... Yeah, which is like the worst kept secret in the realms is that he is way out there. But putting that aside, and they do make reference, like, for example, Stannis's right-hand man is a guy named Davos, who is the Onion Knight. And when they were going through the rebellion earlier, Stannis had been caught under siege and defended a particular castle. And the people there were starving to death. And the Onion Knight smuggled in onions and other foods for them to keep them alive. And so after it was over, Stannis, on the one hand, rewarded him for saving them, but then chopped off his fingers for stealing. This is a guy who's, and they make mention of how he's got, you know, his knuckle bones in a bag around his neck. And so this tells you what Stannis, Stannis is a very by the book. He makes a comment something like that the good doesn't wash away the bad, nor the bad the good. So in other words, he's not going to dismiss your sins, your crimes, just because you did something good for him. But at the same time, just because you've done something bad, he's not going to deny that you can do good things for him as well. He punishes the bad, he rewards the good. But he's so hard-assed about following the rules, so OCD, that that's probably what drives a wedge. It probably make him a rather crappy leader. 
because he won't know how to temper his judgment. Right. But he is apparently a, a pretty kick-ass strategist. And by all accounts, he should have ended up winning the day. He just happened to find himself up against a superior strategist. <laughs> right. But being Tyrion Lannister, Tyrion is, you know, the, the imp is basically takes over through subterfuge, basically the defenses. The sister thinks she's got everything in hand because she has pots of well, what they call wildfire. Right. Which is probably similar to Greek fire in real history. Sure. And they've said they've got like something like 7,000 pots of this. And they're like, well, you know, all it takes is one idiot to trip, fall, and break it, and you've set your own castle on fire. Right. This is a really stupid idea. And so Tyrion tells the guy who's doing this, says, you're not working for my sister anymore, you're working for me. And Stannis comes sailing in with his ships, and what they do is they send a boat out there loaded with this wildfire and leaking it from behind, and fire a flaming arrow into it, and basically set Stannis' entire fleet on fire. So you just see this fantastic visual of this sea of, I keep calling copper fire, because when you burn copper, it burns green. Right. So red fire would have been perfectly fine, but that they went that little step to make it this green flame. It was just absolutely awesome. And um, it's one of the coolest CGI explosions I've ever seen. Yeah, assuming it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming that the green fire explosion was CGI, yeah. Well, they could CGI, they could just have taken an explosion and tweaked the color on it. Uh, okay. You know, but yeah, somehow, it, I'm sure it was enhanced somehow. But I mean, green fireworks, you just make sure there's enough copper in there, you'll get green fireworks. If they actually put a bunch of wooden boats out into a bay and blew them up, I'd be mightily impressed. Well, they could superimpose, there's like, you know, composite, there's lots of ways to go about it. So I'm sure computers were involved in some way, shape, or form. But I think what's one of the neat things is they do spend a lot of time with the women during the battle. That was weird. Well, because they wall up all the women, or at least the important women, because who cares about the rest of them? <laughs> because they know that if they come, they'll get raped. And they're in this little panic room, for lack of a better term. And it should be noted that this would happen because, I mean, after, for example, when Germany fell in World War II, when the Russians came through, the Russian soldiers just raped all the German women. So these things do happen. Well, and, unfortunately, uh, rape is a weapon of war. That's right. just unfortunate fact. Right. We're, we're not endorsing, we're only acknowledging. That's right, yeah. And they're locked up with the executioner, and the women are told that the executioner is there for their safety, for someone to protect them in case they break through the doors. In fact, the executioner is there to kill them all in case the battle goes badly, right. so that they won't get raped. And what's interesting is you have three important characters there, which is Cersei the Queen, Shay, who is Tyrion's secret love interest because he doesn't want her being used against him, right. and, and, and Sansa. Well, plus he doesn't want her to, to get killed either, because right. they would capture her, and who knows what to what to her. And, and Sansa's there, who's the, the King John. Joffrey's betrothed, it's Ned Stark's daughter. And you do get some interesting talk, and for, as a guy, you get a different perspective. It says, and something you don't normally see is the women's perspective of what's going on on the battlefield and them sort of waiting to find out what happens. Well, and I found Cersei's whole attitude during these scenes very strange and interesting at the same time, because I had never seen this out of her before. Normally, she's a very confident woman, maybe even overly confident. In this case, she's pretty much sitting around waiting to die and telling the other other women there how, how it's going to happen. It was kind of weird. Yeah, she makes a comment about how she was confused when she was younger because she and her Jamie were twins and they looked, it was almost impossible to tell who was whom when they were children. And yet he was being taught how to fight and she was being sold off to be someone's bride. You know, she said she was being sold off like cattle. You know, and she didn't think it was serious. And this is clearly, again, it's you know your pre-sexual revolution here. I think a part of her, she's very bizarre in this because she, I think her relationship with Sansa is really complicated because on the one hand, Sansa is supposed to be marrying her son, but she knows her 
son is an asshole. <laughs> right. So she also sees in her herself because she's in that same position. Right. And so at times, even though, and you know, she's a Stark, she's part of the hated family and, you know, and she's going to be, you know, marrying her son and taking her son away. But at the same time, she's seeing her son is an asshole and is going to abuse her. And she feels, she knows what future she has in store for her and feels badly about it and sometimes does give her genuine advice. So she, I think she's really, really conflicted a, a lot of times on how to behave. She wants to be one of the boys. She wants to have the real power. Right. And she's basically stuck. As she says, she's, you know, a woman's real weapon, you know, is between her legs. You better learn how to use it. Well, there's also the fact that Sansa Stark is the daughter of the guy who was beheaded for treason. And because of this, this adds a whole political complication to the situation because she personally did nothing wrong except for being related, which, you know, you don't get to choose that. But at the same time, everybody is kind of looking at her cross-eyed because she's a Stark and she's there in the throne room. Yeah, and she also, she still has some of this naivete in her when the Queen has said something along the lines of, you know, you, you know about unhappy with her lot in life. And she says, but you were married to King Robert. And she says, and you'll be married to King Jeffrey. Enjoy it. Because right. we've already seen him beat her at one point or have her beaten because he didn't do it himself. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, she's almost hypocritical for saying that, though, because she was dirtbag in the relationship more than the king, right? She does go in and the first she goes into the story where she she really was in love with Robert Baratheon. She wanted to be his wife, but he clearly didn't have eyes for her, that his love was all about Ned Stark's when, sister when, who had died. And he didn't want anything to do with her. And Robert Baratheon had originally been betrothed to Ned Stark's sister. Right. And Ned Stark's sister is killed by the Mad King. And so he has to, just as a political arrangement, marries the Lannisters because they're a politically powerful family. And she wanted to be his queen. And he, again, never had love for anyone after that. And he resented her. And there is a moment in the first season where he smacks her. Right. And then threatens to do it again because she backtalks him. So obviously that's not a loving relationship there. And you do feel... Well, you don't you don't feel anything because she's a dirtbag too. So even if she... I well, mean, she's both... a bitch, but you still, you know... Uh, I don't you know. know. I, I hate her guts. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You're, still, you're still punching a woman in the face. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about she's evil. I mean, she 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 put it this way. She, you know what? No one deserves to be punched in the face. But if you had to do it, Joffrey she, she was she <laughs> participated in the disabling of a six year old child, right? and she let her son chop off the head of Ned. So she's a scumbag, and anything she got, she deserved. Well, first of all, Jamie pushed him out the window. She participated. I mean, she didn't participate. She sat there and watched. And I think she after the she she kind of chastises him for that. And certainly with Ned, oh, God, there was no... is an apologist for this character. Come I on, know, this, no, is, this is. Crazy. No, with, with Ned, she knows the son did something stupid, but she wasn't in the power to do anything. He basically, once he became king, he basically put her in his in her place. Oh, I mean, come on. <laughs> she's you speak- apologist. The scene where Ned is beheaded. This reminds she's, me of, of she, no, 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 no. killing Otis, Walking Dead. And yeah, well, well, that's, a whole, that's, well, that's, that's a whole other tactical issue. <laughs> When they're in the courtyard and they ask Ned for Ned's forgiveness, she says he should be spared. And Joffrey oh, over. She has no redeeming qualities, dude. All the Lannisters I, suck. I, except for I, the, absolutely, the, absolutely not. I'm not saying they're good people. I'm not, all I'm saying is that <laughs> if you, all I'm saying is that if you look, there's more texture to them than simply being the mustache twirling villain. Well, she, maybe, maybe they would all be arrested and put in jail for life if it was present day, dude. Well, I'm not saying that about just about anybody in this television series. 
will, to be honest. Well, that's probably true. Yeah, well, she doesn't try to save Ned Stark because of the kindness of her heart. She tries to save Ned Stark because she understands politically it makes much more sense. Right, and she's that a he's- sociopath. She's an evil bastard. All, everything is for survival of her and get her power and her money. She don't care about anybody else. She's, let him eat cake. That's the type of person she is. She's, <laughs> if you listen to her tell her story, it's, now admittedly it is through her filter. She did love Robert Baratheon. She tried to have his child. The child died badly. She believes she does. And she grew to hate him because he would not reciprocate. Oh, and, yeah, to, yeah. and that's her story. Well, that, okay, that's her story. I think she's a bitch. Yeah, I'm she, I, I don't think at any point I have challenged that she's not a bitch. <laughs> Okay, just like I think, kind of like I've said, I think she has mixed feelings as far as Sansa goes, because I think part of her identifies with her. But at the same time, I have no doubt that she would sell her up the river or execute her if it suited her needs. But she certainly, I think, sees her younger self in it, and she sees her lot in life that she's not happy with. And part of it's because she would rather be on the battlefield with a sword than laying on a bed. I will say this, though. I think at this point, at the end of season two, she is at a point where she truly regrets everything that she's done to put Joffrey in power because she's realize what he is. Right, right. The only redeeming quality she has is she's good looking. Well, but she also, like, when she talks to Sansa, <laughs> that's, what, says, that's what Tyrion actually says that to her at, her, at one point. He says to Cersei, you love your children. That's your one redeeming quality. Well, that and your cheekbones. cheekbones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she does and She does say to Sansa later on, she says, the mother will love her children. You have no say in that. But she says, other than that, hold your love from anyone else. So she knows Joffrey's a prick, but she loves him because it's her prick. Right. She's, I'm still with her. She's just no good. I think if you watch again, I think she is afraid of him. She knows he's a monster, but she is her monster. I think you're right on that point, yes. But there's one thing you're forgetting here, is that she's a monster, too. She yeah. created the monster. She, well, she helped she create created a monster, and she's a monster, and but her brother's a monster, and everybody else in that family's a monster. But you also have the two younger children that don't have a whole lot to say or do in the show, but Tyrion repeatedly refers to his wonderful, sweet, kind, and caring, compassionate children, and unfortunately, neither of them were old enough to be put on the throne. It was Joffrey who was the, the prick. Right. So, it Maybe the other two children are better off, even though they're also inbred Lannister bastards. I think with the father, with Tywin, there is some interesting stuff there. The way he deals with Arya, he is a manipulative bastard. I'm sure he can be a hard father, but I think he also cares for his family. I think they have a screwed up relationship, and it is that sort of thing where they have some degree of loyalty to each other, but they're also very ruthless and very ambitious. You know, but I think when there's a threat to the family, they will circle their wagons, no matter what their internal disputes are. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that point. And let's. Remember, she does try to kill Tyrion at the end. Yeah, which makes her even more of a scumbag. All right, so uh, we've got about uh, three hours quoted. Uh, yeah, I think we need to wrap this up pretty yeah, soon. Yeah, we're probably going to have to wrap it up soon. Anything else you guys wanted to mention? I, I want to see more dire wolves. I think the dire wolves are awesome, and I love that scene when Bran is he's still in a coma after he'd been pushed off the tower, and they're waiting to see whether he's going to live or die. The Lannisters actually send somebody to try and finish the job and kill him, but his mother is sitting by his bedside and wards off her attacker long enough for the dire wolf to fly across the room and rip that dude's throat out. That was awesome. And then he just curled up by Bran's feet and went to sleep. <laughs> there, there are so many things that you think about we haven't like really touched. What about the zombies? Right, well, we haven't even touched well, on the whites, the white walkers. Whites. You know, Yeah, I mean, there's so many things we haven't 
touched on. Like I said, Arya Stark, I think, might be my favorite character. I haven't really talked about her. You know, I loved her little teaching sessions with the dance master at Serial Pharrell. Yep, you know, yep. haven't haven't talked about Sam. Haven't talked about hardly anything, really, with the events that go on with the Black Watch or what happens with the Wildlings. Haven't talked, you mentioned Osha or Hodor. Or, you know, they just, can just keep going through the list. Or, you know, with, just... with Rob Stark's Rebellion. You know, and there's so many things that are going on. There's so much good stuff and rich material. You could spend so much time talking about it. It's just really worth checking out if you're into the knights and sword fighting and royal intrigue. It's an awesome, really well done show with high production quality and great acting. Yep, yeah, absolutely. and agree. tits. And tits. And tits. Yeah. 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 Everything's great about it. Alright, well, well, the wife is having me bring out the new puppy to go do what new puppies do outside, so uh, I think we should probably wrap Bark? this up. Uh, that, uh, uh, poop and piss. <laughs> you occasionally in your shoe. They'll do that. <laughs> Next week is season three of Game of Thrones is coming out, so everybody should probably check that out. But definitely catch out on seasons one and two if you have not seen them, because these are a fantastic show. A lot of political intrigue, a lot of suspense, a lot of nudity, a lot of violence, and then they give you a little taste of supernatural beings like the whites and the dragons. So I got some special features when I purchased it on iTunes. I think there's even more if you get them on disc, and there are really some interesting features behind the scenes of the making of the show as well. And I believe also some of the episodes, they do have director's commentaries and writer's commentaries. Yeah, uh, most of them do. There's like a couple episodes a season that don't. There's one track each season where they just have this, the kids do it, yep. which is yep. kind of fun to listen to because they're all kind of childish. However, for some reason, they aren't saying anything during the nude scenes. One other thing is the books. I haven't read them. None of us really got into them that deep yet, but all in all, all we've heard about them is that they're fantastic reads. I do have the first and second in hardcover, but I just haven't picked them up yet. I, I have heard people bitch about the later books that he's sort of dragging his feet and not much happens, but that could just be the fact that people who are happy don't tend to say much. It's the people who are irritated who tend to bitch the most and will mostly bitch online. That's right. I think this episode uh, is a good one. Um, hopefully you folks are, that are listening enjoy it. Now, Eric, why don't you let everybody know about that other podcast that you do with your buddy, Dan? That's the Scancity Podcast. A-S-K-A-N-C-I-T-Y. You can find us on the iTunes store and at scancity.com. And Mike, your blog? Unnatural-selections.com. Okay, very good. And he said he was going to put up his Walking Dead stuff. So, Mike, make sure you do so, so all the people who go and check it out will be happy to see it. Yeah, I need to actually watch something, because I think you, you commented that Last Exorcism 2 was, you know, probably one of the worst films I've seen this year. And I said, but it's also kind of on my top ten list, because I've only seen four movies this year. <laughs> it's on my top ten, my middle ten, and my bottom ten. I really need to see more stuff released this year. So, it's all been a lot of TV this, this year so far, and a lot of Game of Thrones the last week. Right, and uh, to be honest, by the time this episode so it comes out. I think the beginning of the wave of movies are coming. Oz was first. The Host is probably released right as you guys are listening to this podcast. That's the one science fiction thriller by Stephanie Meyer. And then right after that is Evil Dead. And then, you know, we just go on with all the big blockbusters as well as some of the... And uh, we've got two non-current film podcasts at the very least lined up, you know, if not more. So, that's right. <laughs> and actually, there's we probably will do The Host, but we had something to tie into The Host. So yeah, yeah there's but, stuff coming. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We'll, we'll be doing a lot of theme episodes as well as specific title episodes as well so that's good and so yeah I guess that's pretty much it here www.darkdiscussions.com website we need emails so send them to darkdiscussions at aol.com we're coming up to our 100th episode so if you guys have ideas or comments please send them in and we'll bring them up on that episode but only the good ones we don't want crappy ideas no we'll take crappy ideas too we're kind of running low (laughs) Right, right and then at the bottom of every page of the website you can get links to all these things including the Facebook group just search for Dark Discussions podcast podcast on facebook and we'll add you to the group which is basically the forum for the podcast all right so i guess with that stated eric why don't 
on you later, sir. All right. Thanks for tuning in this time to listen to us talk about Game of Thrones. Come back next week. We'll have another topic. (laughs) 